This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno, lifelong New Yorker. Can't imagine living anywhere else. And we've done whole shows as to why I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. But I completely understand the reasons that people do choose to live elsewhere. Now, as we explore that, I want you to think to yourself whether you're someone that has moved out of New York, whether it's to New Jersey, uh, that's where a lot of my friends growing up moved, whether it's to Pennsylvania, that's where all my cousins and my aunt and uncle moved, whether it's to Florida, where we've had scores of listeners moved, where we, whether it's the Carolinas, whatever the case may be, Texas, you name it, California, there's New Yorkers everywhere, right? Where the, It's the great New York diaspora. Diaspora. Whatever the reason people have told you, or maybe this applies to you yourself, that folks have moved out of New York, what do they tell you? Or why have you moved out of New York? Just think about it. Don't tell me. Just think about it. Because usually the answers are fairly obvious depending on when they've moved out of New York. Think about that. Now, that's one section of your brain. They say you could think about... I don't remember. They say you could think about either six or seven things simultaneously, and your brain can't handle anything more than that. So I'm only going to ask you to think about two. Well, maybe two and a half if you include the subcompartment that I just gave you for item one. So item one is whether it's you or someone you know, why have they moved out of New York? That's the first part of your brain. The second part of the, your brain, I want you to think about either your own experience or someone else's experience of living in New York City. And when I say New York City, I mean New York City. All five boroughs, greater New York City, the five boroughs. I mean, this applies just as well to Manhattan, though, but I'm talking all five boroughs. When someone tells you they lived here in the late 70s, the late, the um, early 80s, the mid-80s, the late-80s, even the early-90s, and they had a house or a condo or an apartment. Think about how much they paid to live in New York at that time. How much their rent was, how much they bought their house for in Brooklyn or Staten Island, how much they bought their condo for in Manhattan. Okay, now we have. you should have two... Not competing, but in some ways complementary thoughts going on in your brain, right? Why are people leaving New York City, number one? Two, how much did it cost to live in New York City in 1970, 1975, 1980? Got it? Got it. Okay. Matt Blaze, I don't know if you've been paying attention to anything I've said. Now, why do people tell you... They move out of New York, and, or and I know your own experience. You confess to having lived in New York previously. Why did uh, Why did you li- move out of well, New York? Well, I moved out when I was two years old. Okay, well, so you're not a great example. You weren't in a, much of a position to be a decision maker but at that time. I can tell you why people move out of New York. Tell me, because it's a fortune to live here. 
That's the number. If this was uh, Family Feud, a show, we should have all the sound effects for Family Feud. Yeah, we just have the buzzer. We, yeah, we just have the buzzer when they get something wrong. I need the right, the right one. Yeah, we need it. A, ding, 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 ding. When it right. turns over. That's... That has got to be the number one re- survey says. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. That has got to be the number one reason that people move out of New York City. And... As uh, Yogi would say, it is getting late early. As uh, Bob Grant would say, it's where it is sick and getting sicker. Because all the reasons that uh, it costs a fortune to live here, it's going to cost even more. Now, we're getting somewhere with this. Just bear with me a few minutes. Bear with me. Street Easy reports that the 2022 market in Manhattan is hitting record high rent prices. Record high rent prices. In the first quarter of 2022, Manhattan rent prices increased by $1,000 more per month than there were than where the market was this time last year. In 2021, the asking rent price was 2700. Not only have monthly rental prices increases, but apartment hunting has become increasingly difficult. There were double the amount of available rental units available than in um in, in than in quarter 1 of 2022. I mean, it's not only can does it cost a fortune, but you can't find an apartment. Okay. Now, additionally, I mean, this doesn't just apply to Manhattan. Try try to buy a house in Staten Island or Brooklyn. Good luck. If you're a millionaire, you might be able to afford something. Otherwise, it's going to be a real struggle. Now, um, you take that and you take the experience of so many. Now, what's another reason that people move out of New York City? You did so well with that first one, Matt Blaze. Any other care to hazard a guess as to why else people move out of New York? Job. Job. Well, it's sort of related to to money or economy. Well, I mean, if they got a different job, right? They got to move somewhere else. I don't hear people moving out in droves because they say, "Well, I got transferred to Sheboygan." They say, "Oh, I'm sick of blank." What do they say? Taxes. Well, that's part of cost of living. People. Well, okay, people, people. What else, Philippe? You want to help him out here at all? Crime. Crime. Survey says, ding, 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 ding. That is the number two answer that I hear from people. And as as Bob Grant would say, it is sick and getting sicker. Look at the statistics as to where we are right now. For the month of uh, crime is up dramatically since January. Crime is up uh, from the month from the year before that. Citywide shooting incidents increased by 16% in March of 2022 compared with the the same period last year. Overall index crime increased by 36.5% compared to the same period a year ago. Uh, Grand Larceny Auto up 59.4%. Citywide burglaries up 40%. Now, I do want to mention the one bright spot, which is uh, homicides dropped from March of 2021, but shootings were up. So the fact that people are surviving these shootings, I mean, poor aim and good health care is not exactly a crime-fighting strategy. Now, the reason I asked you to remember where we, where, where we were in terms of the cost of living in this city in 1970, 1975, 1980, 1985 – was because when I talk to 
Well, well, I remember what things cost in this city back in some of those years anyway. But when I talk to people that say they were paying uh, $1,000 in rent, $900 in rent, $700 in rent, they were able to get a big old four-bedroom house for $365,000, $400,000. Same house now goes for a million dollars. Easy. Now, you have to ask yourself the question. How do we have a situation where every day I encounter people that tell me they're moving out of New York City and that they're sick of the crime, they can't afford to live here, and they're going elsewhere, and at the same time, the cost of living here goes through the roof? Because the fact of the matter is, 30 years ago in New York... You want to know why it was so inexpensive to live here? Because there were 2,300 murders a year. Because people had to worry about getting mugged on their way to work and tripping over a homeless guy on their way out of work. And if they ever drove into Manhattan to see a show or something, as you were lining up in in, in traffic outside of the Holland Tunnel or out, out of the Hewell Carey Tunnel, you'd be accosted with squeegee men offering you a non-consensual car wash, who knows what was in those squeegees, spraying this horrible, filthy garbage on your on your windshield, and then, uh, again, non-consensually wiping it off and then begging, sometimes very aggressively, for a tip for cleaning your car, which they made dirty. Now, the reason it was so cheap in New York 30 years ago is because people didn't want to live here. Because people were getting shot. Now, my question for you is, and this is a sincere question, not a rhetorical one, at 800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. How are we now in an era where it is the worst of both worlds? How are we now in an era where it costs a fortune to live here? And you still have to worry about getting getting shot on the subway or on your way to work. Subway crime is up like something like 60%. Don't quote me on that. I don't have that number in front of me. But it's up. Crime's up everywhere in the five boroughs of New York City, even just in the last couple of months. So it doesn't compute with me. How did we get to a place where it costs a fortune to pay rent? You can't find an apartment. And yet everybody I know is daydreaming about moving to Florida. How does that happen? Um, The nice thing about the bad old days of New York in the late 80s, early 90s, or even before that, when there was all sorts of crime and all sorts of homeless people and all sorts of squeegee men, the nice thing about those days was, well, I mean, there were some other charms of those days. We could do a whole segment of the charms of pre-gentrification New York, but we'll we'll save that for another day. But the nice thing about those days was at least it was cheap. You'd only have to pay $1,000 to worry about your stereo getting stolen out of your car and the squeegee men coming to you and, uh, you know, getting shot, you know, on the train or on the way to work. Now, we're in an era where we are living the worst of both worlds. And lest anyone think that I'm being too parochial here, because I know we have listeners all over the country, in fact, all over the world, I've been getting a lot of letters from France, from Spain, 
uh, Russia, elsewhere. This is the exact same situation that's going on in San Francisco. No one could afford to live there. The whole streeted homeless problem is out of control. Crime is skyrocketing. So the two-part question I have for you, and I appreciate your indulgence with this intellectual exercise. I know it took me longer than you might have liked to get there. The two-part question I have for you at 800-848-9222 is, one, how can this be? How can we be in a situation where it costs a fortune to live here and yet crime is going up and the number of New Yorkers moving to places like Vermont and Florida and Pennsylvania is growing and growing? The second question is, what would you do about it? You're dictator of New York City, New York State, San Francisco, if you're a West Coaster. What would you do? To sincerely bring down the cost of living and or really stop crime from going in the direction that it is. 800-848-WABC. Those are my questions. I want to hear your answers. We have one, two, three, four, five, five open lines. 1-800-848-9222. Let me tell you what we have coming up. Very excited. Mousepiration Mike Mugheri. He is a Disney YouTuber and sort of an expert on all things Disney. Uh, We're going to talk to him about this situation in Florida with Ron DeSantis and the decision to do away with uh, Disney's special status that they've enjoyed since the 1960s. What does that mean for Florida? What does that mean for the future of Walt Disney World? And I got a uh, a really great, uh, a really great, uh, f- uh, p- a lot of feedback on my discussion on the Shroud of Turin a couple of weeks ago. So we're going to do a follow up segment w- on that with Barry Schwartz. He's the editor and founder of the internationally recognized Shroud of Turin website, Shroud.com. And don't roll your eyes. Uh, We're going to talk with Ellie Zupnik about proportional representation in the 3 o'clock hour. There's this new group that has been founded to bring proportional representation to the House of Representatives. And uh, I'm looking forward to that conversation very much. All right. Frank in Queens, you've got some answers for me, I hear. Hey, Frank. I don't know if I have the answers. I can just give you my perspective. I'm 50 years old. I'm a lifelong Queens resident. I'm educated. Um, I'm currently in between jobs, but I had a a very good career. I hate to say this, once my father, who's 86, moves on to the eternal life, we will be selling the family house and leaving the state, me and my brothers. Um, I think for people like me that are, let's say, first generation or or more generations uh, along as immigrants, we're not willing to put up with, you, you know, the rise in crime and the prices. What I see in Queens, though, is it's mostly young transients from the Midwest, as well as foreigners, whether they be legal or illegal. Every house in Queens that is sold is flipped into a, a what we call McMansions. It's a multi-person dwelling, and you do not have young, educated, American-born families moving into these homes. It's mostly foreigners. 
for them, I guess, it's like when the Irish and the Italian and any immigrant comes right. to the country, there's a price they're willing to pay to live here. And I just think generations like myself, we're not willing to do that anymore. All right. Well, thank you, Frank. 800-848-9222 at 1-800-848-WABC. Luis is on Interstate 95. Hello, Luis. Hey, Frank, first-time caller. Oh, I just started welcome. listening to the show about a month ago. Oh. Actually well, that's very nice of you. What made you decide to start listening? Uh, actually, the irony is uh, I like Curtis Lewa, and I heard him one day while I was going to work, and he's like, oh, I, I, I'm not originally on this show. It's Frank. And then I decided, hey, who's this Frank? Let me hear him. See, I, that's I, I why. Really I, like well, that's show. very nice, and I appreciate that. And that's why I'm glad Curtis is doing what he's doing and uh, <laughs> and pr- encouraging people to listen. That's very nice to hear. Thank you. And uh, to answer your question, I actually grew up in Staten Island, but I had to move out because uh, a year ago because I just couldn't afford it. Right. And, and I was saying it's RoboCop. That's exactly what's happening. The corporations are buying Manhattan and Brooklyn. And they're not making the prices anything, and the government is uh, coinciding with it. So the job market is still high, but there's no money going into the city. And we're getting exactly what happened in RoboCop. Well, I remember RoboCop and uh, a lot of the things that were going on there. But take me through your scenario uh, a a bit again, uh, because you you lost me a little bit. The only difference is that we have unions here. But OCC is a corporation. So you have a lot of corporations in Manhattan, like Amazon, and uh, I, I can't name all of them, but they're millionaires. They're corporations millionaires, and they're buying up the property. And the landlords are like, well, these corporations are buying up the property, so why don't we just keep the prices regular? If you actually see uh, Columbia University, around the area used to be all Latinos and Hispanic uh but not anymore. They're buying up, and then other corporations and landlords are selling, and uh, the old Spanish Harlem is it doesn't exist anymore. Exactly what happened to Harlem. But the problem is, is that the prices are still staying the same. So the people who are there, they got no jobs that, like, you cannot afford any apartments there. And, and it's getting worse and worse. Crime is going down because you get frustrated, going to drugs. And, and the people who are, like, they move out. I moved out. I moved to New Jersey. Other people move in Florida. And it becomes an endless cycle to the point where all you have left is the corporations and the, and the dissidents. Well, hey, Luis, that's as good of a theory as I've heard thus far. Thank you. 800-848-WABC. Larry is in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Yeah, thank you. I'm going to answer your question. Uh, it's going to sound very Christian, even though I'm Jewish, okay? You know, back in the 80s, when uh, Giuliani first came in... Uh, well, the, Giuliani the, came in in 94. I'm sorry, 94. You were talking about the 80s. Yeah, right. Back in the 80s. Yeah, but by the time he came in in 94, he was ready, we were ready to solve the problem. And it seems like the biggest problem that he, that he took on first was the squeegee people. And I'm like, you know, why is he picking on these people? Even back then, I was, I was saying that these people just want to earn a few cents, and they're willing to work for it. Okay, they're willing to do something. I mean, I'm sorry that they're coming up to these people's Mercedes and BMWs, but we had no compassion, not a little, no compassion on the squeegee people. And because of that, because we use them as the poster boys for lack of quality of life in the city, now we have massive theft, 
and homelessness, where people are not even doing performing services. They're not even courteously staying on the side of the road and, 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 and trying to do a service for us. Well, but they're in our faces l- like, like locusts. Let me, oh, it's, a, it's a plague. Let me, let me, first of all, I'm going to put aside the squeegee debate for another day because I'll defer to my colleague Rudy Giuliani on that. He could debate that much better than I, uh, than I can. But just let me understand where I think you're at. Because the squeegee people were demonized in the late 80s, early 90s, and we can, we can debate whether they were rightly or wrongly demonized. Because of that, the homeless people and the panhandlers in 2022 are reluctant to offer any type of service because they don't want to be seen in the same vein as squeegee men. So now they just sit around and accost people and panhandle without performing a service. Is that what you're saying? No, no, I'm saying this is a punishment from heaven. Okay, this is a plague. This is an infliction. We had no compassion on these people. These people were willing to work and clean out clean windshields. But but the bourgeois in society needed to go to car wash, fancy car washes with their big SUVs that are now clogging up the street. Okay? Larry, uh, I say, Larry, bring I, back the squeegee people. Well, I love that at least somebody is fighting for the squeegee people. That's usually not a group that has many lobbyists or many defenders. I think you're completely wrong about that. I mean, again, I don't know if you were here in that era. I guess you were, Larry, but the – the issue with the squeegee men is they would it was not as if they were performing a service as if they were pep boys and, or and they were you know giving you a a full service <laughs> cleaning of your car and then uh, they were doing it out of the goodness of their heart and they only wanted a few small coins more than more often than not these are squeegee men that had this filthy liquid that they would dip their squeegee in and use it on car after car after car, making your windshield filthy. They made it more dirty. They didn't do a vital service. Number two, many of them seemed as if they were, you know, intoxicated or on drugs. Number three, if you dared not give these squeegee people the tip that they felt they deserved, I remember coming in with my my father, my uncle, they, my grandfather. They would pay the squeegee people to stay away from their cars. They would say they're they're about to hit the hit the windshield. Oh no, no, no! Here's a dollar. Don't do it. Don't do it. But um, if you didn't pay them, they would intimidate you. They were incredibly intimidating to people, and it was not exactly great for tourism in this city. So I I think we. I don't buy the argument of divine retribution. 800-848-9222. The question I'm asking before we get to Mouspiration Mike is, how can we live in an era where it costs a fortune to live here, where rents are still going up, but crime is still going up? Shouldn't it be one or the other? Let me say hello to Charlie in Hell's Kitchen. Hello, Charlie. Hello, Frank. I wanted to answer your questions, your comments, and it's really good commentary, but we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We know it works. When Rudy Giuliani took over and became mayor, he got us out of uh, the of the previous caller said he got us out of bad times. And, and he brought the city back uh, to life. And on the national level, with respect to inflation and supply chain problems and other economic problems, 
on the border, uh, having an open border, essentially on our southern border. The previous president got these problems under control, so we know what works. We we know we we know what the solutions are because we've seen them implemented in the city with Rudy Giuliani here in the city, and on the national level, we saw policy well, prescriptions which worked with well, the previous president. Well, so Charlie, thank you. And look, uh, to... Rudy Giuliani. There is no greater defender of his tenure of as New York City mayor than me. Okay, that being said. You could understand why the cost of living went up under Giuliani, because you saw crime go down, down, down. Quality of life goes up. As the quality of life goes up, tourism goes up. People want to move here from all over the country and be part of what was called at the time the New York miracle, the New York, the suddenly safer city. And you could understand why it costs more. What makes no sense to me is the San Francisco What's the opposite of a miracle? The San Francisco tragedy, where it costs a fortune to live there, and crime is still out of control. To me, if you're in an area with high crime and a low cost and a low quality of life, it should be cheap to live there. It seems like what we've developed here in New York is the worst of both worlds, and I'm trying to get an answer as to why. 800-848-WABC. That's 800 848 Nine two two two. Let me say hello to Al in Manhattan. Hello, Al. Hello, Frank. We meet again. We do indeed. So we do indeed. So Frank, there's a few things that go into moving away. I moved away years ago to Florida. Of course, my kids were young, and I was told that if you ever move anywhere, you should move. When the kids start sixth grade, sixth grade, wherever you move to. And that's what we did. And my wife liked Disney, so she's a Disney freak. So we moved to Disney. So we have our house still there. And it's a better lifestyle. It's a, it's a better quality of people. Um, but the thing that I realized, because I'm in New York most of the time because of the bakeries, I realize that I can't make a living in Florida because I'm not a Disney employee. Even if I was, I couldn't live the lifestyle that I live. And um, so everybody that I know in the town that I live in, where they're from the tri-state area, they fly out to make their money. This is what I do. I fly back to New York. I take care of my business, and then I go back. But they said, one of my friends is a big real estate agent in New York City. Told me something that was pretty, you know, made a lot of sense. He said, you should never move away from where you were born or where you live. And if you do move away, the second rule is you should never move back. Because it's not the same. And he's right. You know, you move away, you got to try to make a life over there. And the reason that I made my exodus was because I saw my kids growing up. Right. And they said, it's a double-edged sword, though, but I'm going to tell you why. When, when, when I moved away, I took I, I kind of stole my, my kid's identity. And what I mean by that is 
they'll never have that New York experience. Right. No, exactly. That's uh, that's very important. That's one of the reasons uh, I'm eager to uh, raise my son here. Great, great call, though, Al. Thank you. I want to squeeze in one or two more before we get to Mouspiration Mike. But by the way, Al, you should listen to Mouspiration Mike. You'll have, I think, a whole different appreciation for Disney World after I speak with him than you may already do. John is in New Jersey. Hello, John. Hey, Frank. How are you? I love the show. Thank you. Um, I just want to touch on this subject because it's very sensitive to me. Um, my parents are from Italy. Uh, immigrants uh, came in the 60s. Um, they have a two-family home. Um, Frank, if you'd walk into a bank and just give them a note and say, hey, I need $100,000, they say, yeah, go to the loan officer. No, 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 no. I want $100,000. You're robbing the bank, correct? I mean, yes. Under, yes, exactly. Okay. This is New York, okay? My parents are 85 years old. They have a tenant that haven't paid rent for 26 months, okay? And they give these dirtbags an attorney to fight my parents so they don't pay rent. You cannot evict these people. This is the law. So the reason this is why a lot of people are moving, they've so, done with these laws. So, Al, the reason prices are up is because apartments aren't opening up because of the difficulty in evicting people. No, people are selling their properties and they're going to states where it's an right. Eye right, for an I, eye. I, I get that, you but do then not pay right, the right, John, I get that, out. John, I get that. But then, why are the prices still going up if everyone's moving out? Well, that's for the, the new immigrants paying premium to live the golden dream, the American dream. Right. So it's just that the immigrants that are coming here are so wealthy they can afford all these crazy prices? Well, if they're putting three, four families into a two-family home. All right, maybe, you know, maybe you're right, John. Maybe you're right. Uh, I, I think the, the, the other caller who had a theory about us becoming the city from RoboCop might have had I, – I don't know. I think he might have been closer to where, what the ultimate answer, uh, answer was. Uh, we'll do one more here. Uh, Neil is on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Hey, Frank. Uh, I'll say three things. Number one. The squeegee guys were the nastiest people. If you didn't pay them, they would take the dirtiest, soapiest water, soak up your window, your windshield where you couldn't see, and then just walk away or bang inside of your car. They were, they were just animals. Number two, the reason the rents are so high, Frank, is because they, people are willing to pay. If they weren't willing to pay, the prices would come down. Well, I, I, I see. I think you're right. I think you're right. I, but I think maybe there's too many economic incentives for landlords, both commercial and residential, to keep these apartments vacant in the hopes of getting some, even if it means keeping them vacant for seven, eight, nine months, to get someone that'll pay $4,000 a month, even instead of a long-term tenant that's able to pay $2,500 a month. So I think there are some other incentives there that you may not be taking into account, Neil. But, well, whatever, we can revisit this a little bit later. Mouspiration Mike is here. Uh, very excited to uh, chat with him. We're going to talk about Disney and what's happening with Florida in just a minute. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. Frank Morano, 77 WABC. 
leader of the truck that's made for you and me. M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E. Hey, they're high, they're ho, they're ho, as welcome as can be. M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E. Mickey Mouse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mickey Mouse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Forever let us hold our banner high, 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 high. Come along and sing the song and join the jamboree. Ah, yes, the Mickey Mouse Club. For years, the flagship children's program of the Disney Empire. Are there, is there another entertainment brand that has endured in the hearts and minds of American children and adults more than Disney? I don't think so. And it just seemed like no matter what you heard about Disney, true or untrue, Nothing stopped Disney. Oh, well, you know, that Walt Disney, he had himself cryogenically frozen. Not true, by the way. Uh, still, people dr- would drag their kids in droves to see these animated uh, these animated uh, films. Uh, oh, you know, all their stuff, all those toys, all those clo- that clothing, all the tchotchkes, it's made in China. Uh, they're paying some five-year-old nine cents an hour to ship this stuff into America. Well, still, people are coming to Disney in droves to enjoy the theme parks. Well, you know, all those uh, early Disney films, they didn't portray minorities or Jews in the best light. Well, still, uh, not only are the theme parks packed, not only are the movie theaters filled, but uh, we cannot renew our subscription to Disney Plus quick enough. And for years, just about half a century, it seems like there was almost a symbiotic relationship between Disney World and the state of Florida. Well, All that came to a grinding halt last week. When the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, signed legislation that was passed very quickly by the state legislature in Florida regarding Disney's special status. Essentially, they got to be a government within a government. And we'll explain more what that means in just a second. This was um, last week, Governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. We will continue to recognize that in the state of Florida, parents have a fundamental role in the education, health care, and well-being of their children. We will not move from that. I don't care what corporate media outlets say. I don't care what Hollywood says. I don't care what big corporations say. Here I stand. I'm not backing down. That was the governor of uh, Florida, Ron DeSantis. And by the way, uh, I should have, when we discussed this a week or two ago, I should have given this disclaimer. But I actually used to be a Disney employee. This co- this radio station used to be owned by Disney, but they sold us about uh, 16, 17 years ago. So I have not been a Disney employee since I think about 06 or 07. Somebody that knows all about Disney and is one of the go-to Disney commentators, at least on the in the world of YouTube, is Mousepiration Mike Mugiri. He is uh, an expert on all things Disney and the co-host of Diz Life Live on YouTube. Mousepiration Mike, thanks for joining me. What's going on, Frank? Are you there? Can you hear me good? I hear you perfectly. Can you hear me okay? <laughs> Absolutely, buddy. What's going on, man? Wonderful. It's great to talk with you. Now, um, tell me a little bit about uh, about your what inspired your love for Disney. How long have you been following Disney as a brand, and what was it about Disney that you first found so alluring? Oh, dude. All right. So this goes back to, 
I mean, it really goes back to childhood. And I think a lot of diehard Disney fans would agree it always goes back to childhood. Uh, but more so from a mature standpoint, uh, in high school, I was just running with a bad crowd. And, uh, you know, <laughs> transparency got in trouble with the law. My junior year, my dad said, you know, all right, well, now you got to get back into extracurricular activities. So I was like, all right, whatever, I'll start playing ball again. In my high school, every program was full, couldn't join any team, so I joined the soccer team. That was the last resort. And uh, my second practice in, they canceled the soccer team, and I was like, oh, I didn't want to go home. Because if I told my dad now, I have nothing to go to, you know, you can only imagine what's going to happen. He's <laughs> like, uh, so I was like, all right. So I saw my friend Alex waiting in the lobby, and I says, what are you waiting? And he goes, I'm trying out for Disney. And I said, what do you mean you're trying out for Disney? He's like, well, you know, the school's going to Disney World and we're going to go to perform. I was like, well, that's cool, I guess, whatever. And he goes, you know, well, there's 40 girls going and about four guys going. Mm. So it was a, you know, junior high school. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I was like, you know, I'll try out too. Yeah, that sounds pretty cool. Uh, So uh, I ended up trying out. I got in and we went to Disney. We performed in Disney. We performed in Universal. Um, and it was like my first real mature trip without my parents in Disney World with a bunch of people. Uh, and it was February of 2003. And there was a bad snowstorm happening here in New York. So on our last couple of days there, we were kind of stranded in the hotel lobby. And Disney basically says, you know, why don't you come perform for us again? Come back to the parks. Enjoy the parks on our dime, you know? And the only only thing we had to pay for was the hotel, which was at a discounted price. Um, it was like right outside the Disney at the time, downtown Disney. Um, and I thought that was really cool. You know, sure, so, they're a billion-dollar company, but well, why sure, would they no, care absolutely. about kids from Staten Island? Absolutely. You know? But what exactly were you doing to perform at the parks that, and that where they would essentially invite you back to do? What were you doing? We were just performing with the high school, man. In, in the, oh, um, cool. There's a theater right next to the Carousel of Progress, or it was there, and uh, we, you know, just for anybody who's walking by can come watch us singing, dancing, just classic tunes and everything like that. And uh, But yeah, I mean, it, like I was like, why would they care about kids from Staten Island? So it got me looking into the company at that time, uh, which led me looking into the ethics and the morals and just the business standpoint of Walt Disney, the man himself. So I fell in love with Walt. And then, of course, it takes me back to childhood because I'm like, you know, through my parents' divorce, when we were poor and things like that, like, Disney was always there. I always had those Disney Disney VHSs. And anytime mm. I stayed with my mom, um, you know, we watched Beauty and the Beast on her repeat and had to sit there and rewind it and then play it again, you know? Was that your um, favorite so Disney film, by the way? No, it was, de- it was definitely Aladdin. Oh, Aladdin. <laughs> okay, no, yeah. I, I, Aladdin's great. Aladdin is uh, is great. So you've been doing these uh, terrific video blogs. I sort of binge watching a whole bunch of your videos t- uh, yesterday, and uh, they're terrific. If people want to see them, they can go to mousepiration.com. It's mousepiration.com, or just search on the YouTube, Mousepiration. And there's there, first of all, the production value on these videos is terrific. The content on these is great. It's very funny. Uh, you have one where you're kind of getting shaved like uh, Walt Disney. You have one chronicling your first magic uh, trip to Magic Kingdom of the year. One where you review the new Star Wars uh, theme park. Uh, and they're very clever and very amusing. When did you start doing these videos? So that actually, uh, during COVID, you know, it kind of alters everyone's life. I uh, started a Disney podcast called Mousepiration. 
And um, I just wanted to talk about Disney, you know, something that meant, meant something to me. And I figured, like, a lot of people are sitting at home right now. Why not? This is a perfect time to start a podcast. Uh, I think a lot of people started a podcast during COVID. Um, but then I met my fiancé, my fiancé currently, during COVID. And she says, did you ever hear, you know, about Disney vlogging? I said, no. So she showed me one channel, um, which was Resort TV One. And they were live in the parks when it just had opened. And they were walking through the parks. And I'm watching these guys walk through the parks. And they're just walking and talking, going live. People are throwing money at these guys to go to the park. They're donating and saying, I, pre- I can't be there right now. I'll go get a pretzel on me. And I was like, this is wicked cool, man. Like, I-, I have a acting and filmmaking background. And these guys are in my happiest place, walking around, getting paid to do it. I was like, this is, this is a real thing. So it kind of led me into this vlogging community, and once I did it, it, it was – I caught the bug. That was it. All right, that is uh, that is pretty neat. And again, if people want to check out the podcast, if, if you want to search Apple iTunes, it's just Mouseperation. There's some great stuff on here. We're talking with uh, Mouseperation Mike Mujiri. He is uh, the co-host of Diz Life Live on YouTube. And uh, so, Mike, I think a lot of people – might have been following this Disney versus Florida story with half an ear. Maybe they heard some rumblings a while ago about Florida passing something called the Don't Say Gay Bill. Maybe they heard something about Disney employees, or as they call them, cast members, being upset. And then maybe they heard something about Disney responding to the state of Florida. But can you give us a Reader's Digest version of what led to the current beef between Disney and the state of Florida? Uh, I mean, in, in the world that we're in today, it doesn't seem like you can have an opinion that goes unnoticed. Um, so I, I, it's really hard to speculate what started this all. But of course, like it says, it's what the media is calling the don't say gay bill. But I don't know how many people, including myself, can really commentate on what the bill is. Because if you looked at a bill, I mean, it is thick. I mean, it is right. There's thick, a lot of man. aspects to it. Right. So I, you know, from what I've seen online, because me myself, I've never, read, you know, actually sat down and read this bill. It doesn't say the word gay in it, but I understand what Ron DeSantis's objective was or is. Um, and then again, I also understand Dizzy's standpoint. But that's the beauty of this country. You have an opinion. You can voice your opinion, so on and so forth. And I think the straw that broke the camel's back of Ron DeSantis. Uh, was Shapek. You know, Shapek s- spoke up and said, this is where we stand. Shapek is, th- the, is the current CEO. Yeah, and I think he's trying to appease, uh, you know, a small group of people at a time, not focusing on the, you know, guest experience as a whole or, you know, his dominant demographic. Um, and then when we say cast members are upset, I think all cast members are upset because you can't please everybody. So some are saying, yes, Shapek did the right thing voicing his opinion against the quote-unquote don't say gay bill. Um, but then there's cast members who understand Ron DeSantis, and then there's people who are just completely neutral. Like, I, I'm Switzerland, dude. Like, I'm going to go to enjoy Disney and the parks because when we go to the parks sometimes, sometimes we get kickback from, like, our friends, family members. Like, how can you support Mm. This company in this time right now. And we're like, dude, I don't care about these right. politics, you know, it, man. I'm it, just it, going to the park. It's like, so funny. I, a friend of mine uh, was over on uh, over th- this past weekend. And he's a very conservative guy, very supportive of what DeSantis is doing with this uh, so-called 
uh, don't say gay bill, agrees completely with it. But he just took his son to Disney World or, or all of his children to Disney World. And he said, Shh, don't tell anyone. And then I said, how was your trip? He said, uh, I've never seen my children so happy for a, for, as they were for the last week. It was really magical. And we're going to take them back, irrespective of what this company's doing and irrespective of what uh, DeSantis is doing. So I think a lot of people are in uh, the same boat you're in where, you know, they, they may agree with the objective of not sexualizing children, but they also want to take their kids to, uh, to enjoy, uh, Disney World. Now, one of the criticisms of Disney from Florida and from other other people has been that as a company, they've become too woke. Uh, and there's they did away with saying ladies and gentlemen in the announcements. At least that was reported. I don't know if that's accurate. And uh, there was a, a statement put out to appease some of the employees that were upset about the company's silence on the so-called uh, don't say gay bill. There was a statement put out that they're going to make sure that uh, 50% of the, the, the products that they come out have characters that are, um, I, I don't remember the word they use, but underrepresented groups could be gay or lesbian or minority. Can you, can you speak to that at all? Uh, is Disney as a company becoming too woke? So, and I hate, I hate this term, man. So do I. Because, you know, woke is essentially, it, it had a whole new meaning just a couple of years ago. Woke actually made you feel like you actually are a, awaken from living in this matrix of a world and realize, you know, some of the stuff that the media puts out there is kind of, you know, fabricated. <laughs> Who would think, right? Mm. Um, so I, I, I don't understand this whole where the woke came from, where it's like, well, now if you're, Supporting an agenda, you're 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 essentially woke, um, but it, again, it's like, dude, I don't, I, you know, it's really just hard to commentate because I I think it's great that Disney is fully inclusive and they want to you know open people's eyes to a certain you know perspective that uh, the typical American family has definitely evolved, no doubt about it, but to push the agenda to to announce your stand on it and do that. That sometimes does a lot more damage than actually doing. I mean, they say, you know, actions speak louder than words. However, these words are, are, are kind of damaging to the company. And especially when you put something out there and then you kind of pull back. So now you're trying to appease one group and now the other group comes in. Like you can't appease everybody. And, and you know, for, for years, I mean, yes, Disney has been in the political game. But nobody knew about it. Mm. Right. Nobody they were making their was contributions quietly. Right. Yeah. And that's the way it should have stayed. Right. So maybe the CEO and the, the company shouldn't have said anything about this legislation, irrespective of what the, the cast members were saying. Exactly. Because it, it, and it just seems funny that there is a huge uprising to support DeSantis from cast members. And we're seeing a lot of these petitions being built and stuff like that. But there was no petitions that I've seen that were revealed to support Shapek. It was just saying, hey, Shapek, you know, it's kind of like he got a pissed off email from somebody. We don't even know if it's from a cast member saying, how come you're not supporting this? And then Shapek says, well, I got to say something. Right. Said right. something. And then it kind of just spiraled out of control. I don't think he was really too ready to grant that, uh, you know. 
backlash on what he was going to say. Uh, we're talking with Mouspiration Mike Majeri. You can check out his website, Mouspiration.com. The podcast is on there. The videos are on, on there. The YouTube videos are really great. So in a nutshell, the uh, what the state of Florida has done, at least effective June of 2023, is they've taken away their special self-governing status. What does that actually mean? And is that a big enough deal that it would ever drive Disney theme parks out of the state of Florida? Well, so now it's going to fall on the shoulders of either Orange County or uh, Osceola uh, County. And forgive me, I'm not saying that right. I just moved to Florida three weeks ago. Oh. Um, yeah, man. So it's kind of good to hear all these New York accents coming out on air, too. Uh, makes me feel like I'm really at home. But, uh, you know, I, I really don't know what it means. But here's my take on it, too. Bob Shapex's contract is going to be up for renewal before Reedy Creek actually gets dissolved, because we have until June of 2023, there were, you, you could redistrict, you could rename, you could do a bunch of things, or there could be another CEO already lined up behind Shapek that may come in and be a savior mm-hmm. or look like a savior. Um, you know, I, I can't heavy lies the crown, but then again, you choose to wear this crown. <laughs> and and I, I saw reported that there are still some tax breaks that Disney is still enjoying that DeSantis hasn't taken away yet. Is that accurate? I'm not too keen on that. I, you know, I, I really wouldn't know too much about what those tax breaks are because, again, I haven't actually sat down. And right, because you're worried anything, about going yes. to the theme parks and doing fun videos, not necessarily the ins and outs of Disney's tax policy. Of course, right, man. Sure. That's what the you know, like someone said previously. We're talking about the housing market and stuff like that. Is people are willing to pay? You uh, know, that's that's uh, the story. I'm just about out of time here. Lightning round, real quick. Best restaurant in Walt Disney World? Any of the parks? If you had to pick, what's the best restaurant? All right. If you're walking around the parks and you're like not dressed in your best, uh, let's say you're in Epcot, definitely a upscale meal, but doesn't give you that pressure to uh, give me the name get again. Up. Give me the name again. Les Cellulay. Les Cellulay. And Epcot serves yeah, booze, right? Unlike, uh, unlike Magic Kingdom. Um, sure does. <laughs> uh, if, you, if you had to pick a favorite theme park, what would it be? Uh, wow. Um, this has been like a <laughs> trolling question for a long time with a lot of people. Gun of to course, your head. I would Gun say to your ma- mouse ears. Ma- what is it? Ma- Magic Kingdom, but currently Epcot just because of the festival food. Okay. All right. The festival food. Hey, um, is the new Star Wars theme park open yet, and how is it? Galaxy's Edge is fin- fantastic. Um, the most recent addition to that has been the the Starship Cruiser, which is that uh, Star Wars hotel that connects directly to Galaxy's Edge. But Galaxy's Edge, I got to say, is one of the most immersive experiences you can have inside of a Disney park. The only th- the only flaw with it is when you're outside the park, you can kind of see how the structure looks, and it's uh, so. I mean, from the parking lot, you can tell like, oh, that's not. Really, Galaxy's Edge, and I don't think that would be. Uh... Lastly, if somebody is taking their kids to Disney and they're an adult or even a grandparent, uh, what would you say is the best Disney attraction? Could be a ride, could be whatever that adults would enjoy. Oh, that adults would enjoy. I mean, nothing. Hey, listen, they put the the flying Dumbo uh, ride on the on every commercial for a reason. I think it's a quick, good ride. Lines are typically always short for little kids. For the adults, it offers uh, just a, a good nostalgic Dumbo. feeling. Okay. You know, Dumbo. Dumbo. Hey, you can't uh, go wrong with Dumbo. Uh, Mouspiration, Mike, it is uh, a real treat to talk with you. I hope we can chat again. Good luck with uh, with your videos. Hope everyone checks them out at mouspiration.com.
Thanks so much, Frank. Take care, brother. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you can give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Hakuna Matata. What a wonderful phrase. Hakuna Matata. Ain't no passing phrase. It means no worries for the rest of your day. Yes, say it, kid. It's our problem free. This is the other side of midnight. We'll take your calls in just a minute. 800-848-WABC. It's The Lion King, a film about uh, some animated big cats. So uh, you may remember, speaking of cats, I live with three cats. I am the stepfather to three cats. My wife had them when I married her, and they came with the deal. And one of them is very, very nice to everybody. She's the sweetest cat you'll ever meet. She will run if you're a perfect stranger, she'll rub, you know, rub right up against your leg. Even if she's met, never met you before, she'll purr. She'll eat a cat treat right out of your hand. She'll let you pick her up. She's the sweetest cat in the world. Her name's Beth Sheba. Beautiful black cat and uh, my wife's favorite by far. Sorry, Melchizedek. Sorry, Prissy. Now, a couple of I guess by now it's a couple of months ago, I had explained to you her problem. She had lost, she was experiencing sudden weight loss. So my wife took her to the veterinarian. The veterinarian said, number one, she's got conjunctivitis. And number two, she's got high blood pressure. So we've been giving her this high blood pressure medication, which she's taking twice a day now, twice a day, which, by the way, all this cat medication is super expensive. Super expensive. I mean, really. Then, um, she gave, she took some medication for the conjunctivitis. That went away just fine. Okay. So yesterday, my wife was due to take Bathsheba for her, you know, checkup to see how things were going. Now, the good news is the blood pressure medication is working. And she, her blood pressure is now normal. Conjunctivitis cleared up a while ago. But here's the problem. She's still losing weight. Now, all of her levels are normal from what they can tell. Uh, she's not, you know, they, they don't think she has any thyroid issues. They don't think she has any cancer or anything like that, thankfully. But she's still losing weight. And they don't really know why. They said maybe it could be some sort of an irritable bowel syndrome where, where what she's eating is not staying with her or something like that. So they recommended this special food that... Um, May a special high calorie food that may help her gain weight. But I'm curious if anybody has any theories on that. You can either call 800-848-9222 or you can email me frank.morano at wabcradio.com if you've experienced anything with that. I'm going to talk to Curtis's wife, honestly, because I know she's a big cat person. She may be up on this. Hey, uh, coming up in a minute, we're going to talk about school prayer and the Shroud of Turin. No, those aren't the same things. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population, get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. Sick of being upsold at gyms? 
My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. So the Supreme Court is right now in the midst of hearing a case regarding a high school sports coach, Joseph Kennedy. And uh, look, it's a majority, it's a conservative majority on the Supreme Court, and they've indicated that the coach, uh, Joseph Kennedy, had, in all likelihood, a constitutional right to kneel and pray at the 50-yard line after games. So they seem to be searching on Monday for a narrow way to rule in favor of this former high school football coach who lost his job for praying at the 50-yard line after his team's games. The task was complicated by factual disputes over the conduct of the coach, Joseph Kennedy, and the varying rationales offered by the school district in Washington for disciplining him. So this is a case that pits the rights of government workers to free speech and the free exercise of their faith against the Constitution's prohibition of government endorsement of religion and Supreme Court precedents that that forbid pressuring students to participate in religious activities. You clear on the case? Have I have explained that well? I hope I have. So in his eight years as an assistant coach at Bremerton High School, Kennedy routinely offered prayers after games with students often joining him. And I will always say often, not often, because that T is there for a reason. Sorry, folks. He also led and participated in prayers in the locker room a practice that neither he nor his lawyers is now trying to defend. So in 2015, after an opposing coach told the principal that he thought it was, quote, pretty cool that Kennedy was allowed to pray on the field, the school board instructed Kennedy not to pray if it interfered with his duties or if it involved students. The two sides disagree about whether Kennedy complied. The Kennedy team is saying they complied. The school district saying he didn't comply. A school official recommended against renewing the coach's contract for the 2016 season, and Mr. Kennedy did not reapply for the position. So according to Paul Clement, one of Kennedy's lawyers, all that was at issue in this case now was whether his client could offer a brief silent and solitary prayer of thanks after his team's games. Earlier episodes were not relevant. That's what the lawyer is saying. Quote, Coach Kennedy was fired for that midfield prayer, not for any earlier practices. And he's saying 
that the school district's actions violated Coach Kennedy's First Amendment rights. Now, the lawyer for the school district said that it's entitled to require that its employees refrain from public prayer if students were likely to feel coerced into participating. Now, it looks like the court, and we'll see, sometimes the Supreme Court surprises us, but it looks like the court is going to side with the coach here. That's all the indications. That's what the judges seem to suggest based on their comments. Excuse me, the justices. That's what Supreme Court observers are saying. Looks like the coach is going to win. But what I'm going to ask you to do now is play... Supreme Court justice, how would you rule if you were on the Supreme Court? And as you take that into account, I want to take you back in time to about nine hours ago. Nine hours ago? Seven? Yeah, nine hours ago. Uh, And the Cats at Night show, where their regular weekly guest and contributor Alan Dershowitz was on, analyzing this case now like Dershowitz don't like him the guy knows a thing or two about the law the guy was the a a professor at Harvard Law for 50 years and probably the most quoted legal authority over the course of the last half century okay so the guy's not a schlub right you're not gonna uh, you're not gonna confuse him on what the seventh amendment is versus the fourth amendment Okay, you're not going to trip him up on that. The guy's a smart guy. He knows the law. He knows the Constitution. This is what he said about the case. And before you respond to what you would do here, listen to what Alan Dershowitz says. Probably going to win, but I don't think he should win. Let me tell you why. What if instead of it being a Christian coach who did Christian prayer, he got to the middle of the field and said, now, Allah, I want to praise Allah. And I want to invoke Sharia law, and I want to pray to the God of the Muslim people. Would the, would, the, would the school tolerate that? If the school wouldn't tolerate Muslim prayer, if the school wouldn't tolerate Hindu prayer, if the school wouldn't tolerate atheist invocation of some kind of philosophy, and it wouldn't accept Jewish prayer, it cannot accept Christian prayer. So to me, the question is not whether you're preferring religion over kneeling for the Star Spangled Banner, but whether you're picking and choosing among religions. Remember, too, that the First Amendment was written in large part to protect Catholics in this country because everybody hated Catholics back in 1793. You should read Jefferson and Adams' letters about Catholics, how they're going to ruin the country and Jesuits are going to spoil the country. And... Every state was establishing a different form of Protestant religion. And the framers of the First Amendment said, no, government can't pick and choose between religions. And I think that in this case, if it hadn't been a Christian prayer, uh, I don't think the school board would have allowed it. So I'm I'm a dissenter on this one. So Dershowitz would dissent. And I thought he gave a pretty good, a pretty clear case as to why. So I want you to act as if you're on the court and I want you to respond one way or another to Dershowitz's objection. Now, I'm going to throw another wrinkle at you. I love these wrinkles that I get to throw at you. That's a host prerogative. A satanic temple is suing the uh, a Pennsylvania school over an after school club denial. And the lawsuit is arguing a violation of the First Amendment. The Satanic Temple 
is suing this Pennsylvania elementary school after its school board voted against the introduction of an after school Satan club last week. And this is not a joke. This is all this is all legitimate. The Satanic Temple filed a lawsuit on constitutional grounds against Northern Elementary School in York, Pennsylvania, according to the local ABC outlet, no affiliation with our station, it's ABC News, KTUL. Uh, Matthew Kazea, the general counsel for the Satanic Temple, who knew Satanists had such good lawyers, said, well, I guess, you know, if you're going to find a place that has pretty good lawyers, I guess it would be hell, right? I mean, apologies to my lawyer friends, but a lot of lawyers that I know laugh harder at lawyer jokes than anybody. So the, the, the lawyer for the Satanic Temple said that the lawsuit intends to litigate whether the Northern York County School Board discriminated against the organization by not allowing them to start an after-school club when other organizations are allowed to. The First Amendment, there's a quote from the lawyer, the First Amendment prohibits a government from considering the popularity of communicative activity when determining whether to facilitate that communicative activity on equal terms with other similarly situated groups. The lawyer said said that each part of the lawsuit could be time-consuming, taking from 18 months to two years to complete. A spokesman for the Satanic Temple told Fox News about the clubs previously, before this lawsuit was filed, Quote, I'm hoping that with our presence, people can see that good people can have different perspectives, sometimes on the same mythology, but not mean any harm. Uh, This is what their website says. The After School Satan Club is an after school program that promotes self-directed education by supporting the intellectual and creative interests of students. If they deny us the use of a public facility, which they have no right to do, It'll have to move into litigation, which is where we are now. So I want you to rule as our guest Supreme Court justice or guest district judge in one case on both cases. Does the Satanic Temple have a right to set up an after-school Satan club in a public school? And does the coach have a right to pray on the 50-yard line? 800-848-9222. Weigh in on both cases. And if you're weighing in on the the coach, I want you to keep in mind what Dershowitz said and respond to Dershowitz appropriately. I know some people were trying to uh, call in before. There's one open line if you want to jump on board now. uh, Act quickly. 800-848-9222. Let us begin with Eddie in Ocean City, Maryland. Hello, Eddie. How are you doing, Uncle Frank? I'm hanging Uh, in there. Thank you. Yeah. Let me tell you like this. I I always believe that the the Supreme Court case, which uh, led to the precedent of separation of church and state in the school system, uh, was always flawed because because it's a good uh, it's, it's a good idea in, in, in essence, but but it, it, it's 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 going to, it goes a little too far. I think there's a great a great time and a great case for the court to revisit that that case and to say that yes religion could be tolerated in school so long as it's not forced upon the students and in the case of this coach where he's he's praying and if students are praying in of their own free volition then that should be fine um what about what Dershowitz said there what if it was a muslim prayer do you would you feel any differently well so Dershowitz said that if he thinks if it was a muslim prayer they the court would be 
would be sending different vibes? He fa- uh, Yes, essentially, yes. So he's essentially not saying an argument. He's just saying that he doesn't believe in the integrity well, of the Well, no, he, he's saying, uh, and again, I don't want to play the whole 90-second clip. The reason I left it 90 seconds was because I thought the context, the context of the clip was self-evident. But um, what he's saying is that this is this is um, a government, in this case, employees of the public, the coach who's paid for by the taxpayers, endorsing a religion, uh, which he believes prohibited by the First Amendment. Which is exactly my point that the, that 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 point of the of the separation of church and state should be revisited, because I don't think that government employees if they're if they're expressing religious uh they're expre- expressing their religion not in the context of of the of, of forcing anyone else and not in the context of their job making it that is what their job is so then they should be able to to uh, to, to practice their own religion and students should be able to join them if from of their own free will all right. Okay. Uh, uh, th- I, I don't agree with Dershowitz. All right. Thank you, Eddie. 800-848-WABC if you have a different view. Meantime, I was also telling you about um, our cat Bathsheba's weight loss. And if you have a solution on that, you're welcome to call in as well. Pamela is in central New Jersey. Hello, Pamela. Hi. Um, yeah, I had a cat who um, was losing weight, and I have a great vet, and uh, Cornell uh, has done a lot of studies on this, but they're not sure w- what causes it. It's called waste away syndrome sometimes. I mean, you still have to see if there's an etiology to this, but um, sometimes cats just waste away and they still, it's a mystery. Hmm. Um, and I had a cat who had other issues. She was run over by a car and and uh, I took her in and everything, and it could have been neurologically based, but my vet said sometimes we just don't know it could be multiple sclerosis or something. Um, so I gave her, I don't work for the company, but I, I used Hill's prescription AD, urgent care, for dogs and cats, and it works. I've used it on the poor cats, that, uh, the feral cats that have gotten through this god-awful winter, and they're all emaciated. And uh, it, I've seen a difference in them. It, it works. It, it fattens them up. But sometimes, you know, you can prolong their life. But um, And I'm not saying there isn't an ideological, you know, reason for this. It, with your cat, you still have to research it. But sometimes they just waste away. And I, I ended up having to feed my cat. And she lasted quite a long time with all her issues. She was like 14, maybe 15 off the streets. Um, I fed her like four times a day. And she was always hungry. And I just kept feeding her AD and whatever she would eat. Um, and it, it prolonged her life. But she kept, lo- oh, it was, you know, every time I brought her to the vet, she would lose two ounces, mm, mm. one ounce. And it, it was heartbreaking, but they're they're trying to find out what causes it. And sometimes you don't you you may never know. But um, my vet surmised maybe at the end maybe it was MS. He wasn't quite sure. Um, but and he's a great vet. And um, but it's a mystery. Um, it is indeed. Uh, thank you, Pamela. Appreciate that. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Jacqueline in Brooklyn. Give me your thoughts on the praying coach and the Satan after school after school club. Good morning, Frank. Morning. Um, With regard to what Professor Dershowitz stated, um, I'm of the opinion that I think Christianity is under attack in this country, and I think part of the reason that they're singling out this coach is because it's involving Christian prayer. 
I think quite the opposite. If it were involving Islamic prayer or something other than Christianity, I think they wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot I see. So you don't think the school district wouldn't have renewed his contract if he was doing a Muslim prayer or a Jewish prayer? Right. I don't think they would have addressed it at all. And as far as the satanic thing is concerned, again, my opinion is this country has been based on Judeo-Christian values. But it doesn't say that in the Constitution. Well, but historically, that's the way it's been for thousands of years. I know, but but, but with Supreme Court justices, they do have to make... They have to make um, decisions when they determine whether something's constitutional or not based on what's in the Constitution and and supporting documents. And it doesn't say that. It doesn't say, well, you know, we're against school. uh, It doesn't say we're against establishment religion, except in the case of Judeo-Christian religions. Okay, but what if all of a sudden this particular – there was a group that decided – in their warped minds, that they wanted to have uh, bestiality and uh, sexual abuse of children to be the basis of their religion. Would that then be okay? Yeah, I, I, I no, I don't think so. And, you know, it's either. funny, this, 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 this uh, is playing out on some level now right here in New York City because a lot of people are trying to use, and I don't want to insult anybody's beliefs, but they're trying to use what I'll call weird religions as an excuse to not get vaccinated because there's a, a vaccine mandate. Uh, you can get a vaccine exemption from the mandate based on religion. So some people said they're following the religion of the big Lebowski, um, dudism, so they shouldn't have to get vaccinated. And that could be a case that ends up litigated. How do you decide what a religion is and what isn't? I don't know that you do. That's why I, I, I think that's, you know, that's why it's such a tricky case from a legal perspective. Give me your thoughts. Two open lines. Satanist club in Pennsylvania and praying coach in Washington. I'm asking you to rule on both. 800-848-9222. When you rule on the on the on the praying coach, you have to take Dershowitz's dissent into account. And look, it looks like it's a fait accompli. It looks like we know what the court's going to do. Uh, Mike is in New Hyde Park. Hello, Mike. Uh, good morning, Frank. I, I frankly, I don't think the First Amendment can possibly protect a so-called satanic organization because it's not about religious freedom. As the previous caller stated, it's about socially destructive practices that they are very proud to advertise, such as bestiality, infanticide, uh, pedophilia, um, and other destructive elements uh, that are no different than law enforcement protecting us from organized crime. It's not about the First Amendment. It's about an enclave that is uh, threatening society. All right. And give me your two cents on the uh, on the praying coach. Um, Once again, I think that uh, as far as I'm concerned, if an imam were coaching a soccer team or a football team or whatever, and they wanted to have a prayer, uh, it sounds like it was silent prayer. And once again, I have to agree with the last caller. I think there is an, an inequity in the sense that Christianity is being targeted. E- even if it's a even if it's a public employee doing it, it's fine. It doesn't matter. That public employee has First Amendment rights. Yeah, well, that's what his lawyer is saying. Thank you. 800-848-WABC. Uh, two open lines if you want to jump on board. Corey is in Brooklyn. Hello, Corey. Hey, Frank. Hey. Um I would uh was was the coach actually pushing it on the 
kids. Or well, that's just, where there's was, some dispute. Uh, he and his lawyer are saying no, and the school district seems to be saying yes. We used to have a prayer, and it was, you know, uh, but it wasn't any particular religion. So there's one thing, uh, and I and I'm if the satanic cult wants to, I'm. I'm I'm for that too. If the as long as the parents are cool with it, you know, and I think they'll probably get laughed off the out of the school. Yeah, I can't imagine there's going to be a big demand to join the the satanic temple after school club. And one more quick thing, uh, I went to that cool uh, the uh, arcade. Oh, the Lucky Snake. Lucky Lucky Snake. Yeah. What'd you think? Very very awesome. And how did your dog like the showboat? Oh, she liked it fine. Good. And the showboat was. It was a ghost town, and but it was accepting dogs. And during the week, it was, uh, you know, easy. Um, but they do have skee ball, traditional. Oh, good. And, oh, I didn't know that. Great. Yeah, I can't wait to go back. All the pinball games that I love. I've seen those. That's, pre- that's pretty neat. I can't wait to get there. Yes, Corey, sir. thanks. I, I, by the way, I applaud you. I think you're being very consistent by supporting the First Amendment rights of both the praying coach and the satanic um, after-school club. In some ways, I think it's sort of two co- two sides of the same coin. Thank you, Corey. And again, I mean, my sympathies lie much more towards the coach. But from a legal perspective, I think there are some similarities here. 800-848-WABC. Uh, we're going to talk about the Shroud of Turin with Barry Schwartz in just a minute. Wilford is in Newark. Hello, Wilford. Yes, Hello. Hello. I think, like Dershowitz said, uh, that's right. Because if you start doing that, you have, you know, they have more problems coming later when different groups try to do it. And what? that Santana group, as long as they're not, you know, doing something that's wrong or doing it doing school, in school, they had a right to do that. Yeah. Well, uh, Wilford, thank you. Again, I applaud you for your uh, consistency to some extent as well. Uh, You know, one wonders if we weren't talking about a football coach here, what if there was a Muslim um, teacher, still a public employee, just like the football coach, and at a certain point in the day, in the classroom, while the students are meant to be studying silently, the Muslim teacher takes out his prayer rug, puts it on the floor, and prays to the east, right in the middle of the classroom. If you don't have a problem with the coach, to Dershowitz's point, would you have a problem with that? 800-848-WABC. By the way, I do recommend that you listen to the whole interview that Dershowitz did with John Katsimatidis and his team. The podcast is available at WABCradio.com. Comment as you see fit. Two open lines, 800-848-9222. Just to revisit the cat situation, Tom is in Brooklyn. Hello, Tom. Hi, uh, Frank. How are you? Uh, Good morning. Uh, I have two things for you. I want to answer that question about the religion and everything, but I do have some uh, info for you. The dry food is dead, basically, nutrients and life. It's all about the preservatives. They have to be able to keep it for shelf life. A lot of that stuff is dead. Well, but she she eats wet food also. Even the wet food, a lot of it's it's like the dead, dead nutrients, but the wet food is definitely better than dry food. One of the best things for a lot of times it could be feline HIV. It's a very common thing with cats. Have them checked out for that. Um, and the other thing is you can add, put additives in there, the nutrient additives that they, uh, you can add to the food, 
Well, what the best solution for us was, well, we had a cat and a dog that had, we cook our own food. And you just take a whole chicken, you boil, you boil it. You don't, you know, you don't fry it or anything like that. You don't, you boil it and salmon as well. Uh, salmon is very good. Um, that's one of the best things for an animal. That'll help them gain weight. There's other things you can put in it too, like um, vegetables and um, um, those, the eggs. Eggs are good for it. And coconut oil is actually very good for a dog's coat as well. All right. Uh, or, or a cat. Well, thank- uh, on the, uh, Go ahead. Yeah, let me hear your take on the uh, the praying coach. Well, I, I just feel that if, if, it's, if, if the guy is going to coach, I mean, if the coach is going to pray, and everybody's okay with it. Who cares? You could just say, "Hey, listen. You pray to your own God. If you're really, if you're Muslim, you're Hindu. You pray with that God, it's to your God. It's all the same God, basically. Me, I pray. I pray to Mother Earth. You know, that's my religion, and um, I believe it should be allowed. And it's satanic club as well. I mean, unfortunately, as long as, long as they're not doing anything wrong, yeah. it's a club, and they should allow. I believe that they should allow that. Well, I, and, I again, um, I applaud you for your consistency as well, uh, Tom. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two. Two two. Mike is in Queens. Hello, Mike. Hey, I was thinking about the uh, the uh, Dershowitz uh, ruling and, and, and thinking about it this way. And the first part of it is, uh, of course, that any religion, like the previous caller said, should be given the right to express themselves. However, on the second issue, uh, you know, so so what I say is that the coach should be allowed to pray uh, so long as it's a silent prayer. He's not forcing anybody else to do it. He should be given his right to self-expression, whether he's Muslim, Christian, uh, or Jewish, or, or any other religion that has the values of the country uh, at heart, which is it. But on the other group, the satanic cult, you're remembering that, that this group is basically, we, we take an oath when we go to court on a Bible. Uh, we take an oath. Uh, well, you don't on, have to. Uh, you don't have to. You can affirm. Yeah, I, I know you don't have to, but, yeah. but you know what I'm saying. Uh, on, on our money, it's in God we trust. This is the opposite of that. This is the religion of evil, essentially. So why should they? Well, be in your view, but they don't view it that way. No, essentially, if you were to hold up a dollar bill in the court, in my argument, that is how I would present it. No, no, no. But no, I'm saying uh, the Satanists and don't view themselves as being part of a religion of evil. Unfortunately, though. We are in a country where if you hold up a dollar bill, it's in God we trust. Yeah, but the, I don't think that's unfortunate. And, and Mike, thank you for the call. I'll get back to that dungeon that you're calling us from. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think you're making the case for more religion in public space, not necessarily not necessarily less. We'll squeeze in one more call here before we get to Barry Schwartz. Steve is in New Jersey. Hello, Steve. Hey, good morning, Frank. Um, morning. I was calling to talk about the praying coach and uh, sat- satanic after school club. Sure. So I had an experience in high school with a football coach. Every day at the end of practice, we would say to our father, and it was a public school, but he would make it clear that we're not trying to convert you. We want to teach you priorities about family, school, sports, priorities in life. And we had Jewish kids, Catholic kids, Protestant kids, praying at the end of practice to teach people to work together and stay together. So, and with the satanic after school club, I would say you have to take a case by case and see what they want to teach our kids. Cause instead of playing word games about everybody's free to worship wherever they want, we want to protect our children in the schools. And as long as they're trying to teach them a good message and good priorities, it should be allowed, but you have to examine it and just say, you just, 
anybody can come into our schools and teach our kids. Gotcha. Well, thank you, Steve. All right. When it's speaking of God, a lot of people believe that the image of Jesus is on the Shroud of Turin. We're going to talk with Barry Schwartz. He's the editor and uh, the founder of the internationally recognized Shroud of Turin website. We're going to talk about the mystery surrounding the Shroud of Turin. Is it real? Is it a hoax? What's the story? We're going to find out straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. We anticipate a riot. This common crowd is much too loud. Tell the mob who sing your song that they are fools and they are wrong. They are a curse. They should disperse. This, of course, a terrific song from the uh, rock opera Jesus Christ Superstar, which is one of my favorites. I love the music. I love the acting in the film. I love the way it's shot. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen it performed on stage, but as far as I'm concerned, it's just phenomenal, and it seems an appropriate introduction to our next, next topic of discussion, which deals with the Shroud of Turin. Look, last Sunday was Orthodox Easter. All of our Orthodox listeners in a very Jesus-y mood. The week before that, you had um, the non-Orthodox Christian Easter, and a lot of people have heaven on their minds these days. So it seems as appropriate a time as any to revisit a subject. When we talked about it last, was one of the subjects that I got the most feedback on of any subject we've ever done. And that's not an exaggeration. And it has to do with the Shroud of Turin. If you're not familiar with the Shroud of Turin, it's one of the most fascinating mysteries in the history of the world, and I don't think that's an exaggeration. The Shroud of Turin, also known as the Holy Shroud, is a length of linen cloth bearing the negative image of a man. Some describe the image as depicting Jesus of Nazareth and believe that the fabric is actually the burial shroud in which he was wrapped after crucifixion. What is it? Is it real? What's the story? Barry Schwartz has spent many decades studying and exploring this. He's the editor and founder of the internationally recognized Shroud of Turin website, which you can check out at shroud.com. Doesn't get more simple than that. And he was also the documenting photographer for the Shroud of Turin research project back in 1978. Barry, thanks for joining us on the radio. I'm not sure if this is early or late for you, but it's good to talk to you. Well, it's uh, past midnight, and uh, for me, this is normal. I usually go to bed about three or four, so uh, when you asked me to be on the program, I thought, yeah, I can do that. Wonderful. Well, it's great to talk with you. So in a a nutshell, Barry, what exactly is the Shroud of Turin? 
Well, as you described it, it's a 14 and a half foot long sheet of linen cloth made from flax plants um, that bears an image of a crucified, scourged, crowned with cap of thorns, speared man, ventral and dorsal, full front of the body, full back of the body. So it's the entire body shown on this cloth. Um, it bears all of the forensically accurate blood stains and contusions and swelling of the cheekbones and things uh, that one would expect from a man who would, was beaten severely and then scourged with a Roman flagrum and ultimately crucified, crowned with a cap of thorns, and ultimately uh, stuck with a spear in the side where there's a large uh, blood stain and uh, serum stain uh, at the side wound. So it matches precisely and forensically accurately what uh, has been described in the Gospels as the tortures of Jesus. And where is it located? If I wanted to walk and take a trip to the Shroud of Turin now, where exactly is it right now? It's in the Cathedral of St. John the Baptist in Turin, Italy, northern Italy. Uh, but you wouldn't be able to see it if you went to the cathedral. It's stored in a special cabinet that's fireproof that's been uh, where the shroud used to be rolled up on a dowel and put in a wooden box. They're not doing that anymore after a fire almost destroyed it again in 1997. They built a special cabinet. It's purged of uh, air and contains argon gas to uh, preserve it and keep it from aging or discoloring, much as the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution are mm -hmm. kept in Washington, D.C. It's temperature, humidity controlled by computers, so it's actually better preserved today than it ever has been in its entire history. Now, so, since yeah. it's in a uh, Catholic facility in Italy, folks may think that the the Catholic Church embraces the narrative that Jesus is on the Shroud of Turin, but that's not exactly the case, right? The Catholic Church is somewhat agnostic when it comes to confirming whether or not this is Jesus' image on the Shroud of Turin, right? Yeah, and, and I, I think that's probably a wise decision on their part, of course, be it far from me to be speaking for the Catholic Church, but at, at the same time, uh, you know, it's controversial enough, I think, that they have looked on it as a a potential image of Jesus, an icon of Jesus, but they've never come out and declared its authenticity. And and I understand why they've done that. I think they're being cautious about it. Uh, it's Look, in the entire history of that cloth, there's only been one in-depth scientific examination of it, and that was back in 1978 when we were given permission to examine it, and it's now 44 years later. You know, we went there to answer one question, how is that image formed? Is it a painting? Is it a scorch? Is it made photographically? And we were really unable to answer the question of how it was formed, but we were able to characterize what's on the cloth, and we can say without a doubt that it's not a painting. It's not an artwork of any kind. There's no paint pigment or binders or anything that would imply an artwork. The image resides in the first couple of microns at the top surface fibrils only. It does not penetrate through the cloth uh, the way paint or pigment would. Uh, we've eliminated the uh, possibility of it being, a uh, being scorched onto the cloth, which is one of the theories that uh, one of the skeptics came up with, that they took a, a beautiful metal sculpture and heated it up and scorched the image onto the shroud. 
uh, but our science proved that was not the case because scorch is on the shroud, and there are many documented scorches from a fire in 1532 that are on the cloth. And uh, using something called ultraviolet fluorescence photography, we showed that all the areas of the cloth that had been impacted by a high-temperature event, for example, scorching, um, fluoresced when uh, using ultraviolet fluorescence photography. Uh, but the image itself does not fluoresce. And if anything, it quenches the fluorescence of the background. So what that says basically is whatever that image is, it was not created with a high-temperature event. So we were able to eliminate that in photography. There's no light-sensitive silver salts anywhere on that cloth. We found zero silver anywhere on the cloth, eliminating photography as a possible uh, method of making the image. And so uh, even though we've sort of failed in our attempt to answer the one question we were there to ask, uh, which is how is that image formed, um, we could characterize the chemistry and physics of it, which we've now, you know, has been published in peer-reviewed literature. But the frustration is not only did we come back with all this data that we spent three years reducing before our papers were all published in journals, but we brought back with us a thousand new questions. Mm. And so the frustration was we really wanted to go back. There was planning for a STIRP2 uh, where we were going to do 26 new experiments, including radiocarbon dating. Uh, but the first 25 that we had recommended, in the end, uh, politics came into play. And our team was not given permission to do a second go-round. So many of the questions, the new questions that were raised by the data we collected back in 78, those new questions have never been answered. And no one has been given permission to go back and re-examine the shroud using 21st century technology. Uh, It's frustrating, but that's the the way it is. I can imagine. Now, who is the keeper of the Shroud of Turin? Who gets to make decisions about things like who can examine it, who can see it, and so forth? Good question, Frank. Back in the 70s, when our team was given permission to examine it, everybody said, well, isn't it nice that the church gave you permission? The church didn't give us permission. The legal owner of the shroud at the time was King Umberto II, the last Duke of Savoy, the last monarch of Italy. Mm. And his family owned it for over 500 years. And so the folks in Turin... Uh, In 1578, it it was uh, brought to Turin by the Savoy family, and they decided to put it in the cathedral there. So the people in Turin became the custodians of the shroud, but the legal ownership never transferred. It still belonged to King Umberto, and he's the one who gave us permission to examine it. Frankly, I believe had it been up to the church, we probably wouldn't have gotten that permission. Interesting. So uh, as it stands today, however... 1983, King Umberto died. Two years later, as his will was uh, put through probate, uh, it was discovered that he decided to leave the shroud, not to his son, as had been historically done in the family for over 500 years, but instead to leave it to the living pope, which was John Paul II at the time. And so he became the legal owner, and upon his passing, it went then to Pope Benedict and now to Pope Francis. So when people tell me that, well, the shroud's only a Catholic thing, and, you know, it's a Catholic uh, relic, I always say, well, yeah, that's true since 1985, but it's been around at least for 700 years, and it was not owned by the church until 85. So now it's the living pope who has the say about who or when it can be examined again, 
And so far, uh, none of the popes uh, since have authorized any further science to be done, although they have authorized public exhibitions of it uh, a little more frequently than had been done throughout the centuries. So uh, the next public exhibition is tentatively scheduled for uh, 2025, which happens to also be the next holy year of the Catholic Church, and uh, but they have not yet formally announced that. But since that was suggested by uh, Pope John Paul II, it's quite likely that his successors, uh, in this case Pope Francis, will uh, go along with his request and uh, authorize it to be publicly shown again in 2025. We're talking with um, Barry Schwartz. He's the editor and founder of the uh, internationally recognized Shroud of Turin website. You can check out the website for yourself at shroud.com. There's a ton of fascinating information on there. Uh, Barry, you alluded to 700 years, more or less, of history. How far back can the history of this the verified history of this specific shroud be traced? Well, without a a break in the chain of custody back to about the mid-1300s. However, it only became the Shroud of Turin once it was brought to Turin in 1578. So, but before that, it, it bore other names. And there are documented areas in the history, although there are breaks in that chain of custody, if you will, um, that go back back to second and third century. So uh, you have to remember that the shroud itself uh, presented the people who discovered it in the tomb with a real problem. It violates a couple of Jewish laws. Number one, it bears an image forbidden to this day by Jews and Muslims. And number two, it contains the blood of the decedent. And Jewish law says that anything with the decedent's blood must be buried with the body. And in the Gospels, it mentions there was a second cloth folded and separate from the main shroud. That was the face cloth that would have been put over Mm -hmm. his head when he was taken from the cross. We still do it today. We cover the face of the dead when they pass. And that face cloth uh, is a separate cloth, but because it contained blood and pleural fluids from his lungs, um, that cloth was in the tomb to be buried with the body as uh, in accordance with Jewish law. So, Barry, you know, uh, w- you know, so just so folks understand now, if you look at the shroud with a naked eye, you won't see an image of a man, right? Well, you'll see it, but it's only about 20 percent darker than the background at its darkest point. So the image on the shroud is subtle. The fact that there are burns and scorches that run the length of the shroud on either side of the image uh, adds to the visual confusion when you look at it. It makes it even harder to sort of discern the image that's there. But it's there, and it's there well enough that when photographed and the contrast of the photograph is in, increased, uh, the image becomes very clear. So the, 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 the best way the – image... the, the, just sorry to interrupt. Just want to be clear yeah. here, and then I'll uh... – I'll promise I'll let you say whatever you like. The, just so for people to really see the image, the shroud has to be photographed, and then you have to see a negative image of it, right? Correct. But the first photograph of the shroud was made in 1898 by a man named Secundo Pia. Uh, in those days, he had to work with a great big monstrous view camera and glass plates and process them manually in the, in the darkroom himself, um, and. What he discovered when he held up his glass plate, 
is that the lights and darks of the image, of course, on a negative, are inverted. So what was on the shroud is rather obscure and difficult to make out. But when he photographed it and held up his glass plate where the lights and darks had been reversed and the contrast had been increased somewhat, suddenly he was looking at what appeared to be a very positive, natural-looking image on his glass plate. That implied that what's on the shroud has the properties of a photo negative, and when you photograph it and invert those uh, lights and darks uh, the way a negative does, um, now you get a more natural positive image. So he claimed that what's on the shroud has a property like photographic negative, and of course he was immediately accused of some darkroom tricks or that he manipulated or retouched it. And it wasn't until 1931, 33 years later, that the, photo, the second set of photographs were made in 1931 by Henriet, Giuseppe Henriet, that verified all of the claims made by Secundo Pia, who made the first photographs. So photography has played an important role, not only in making people aware of the shroud, but in providing access to it so that researchers could study it and begin to try and understand what's on that cloth. It's just, it, and again, I, I'm trying to ask questions as skeptically as I can, but sure. it's difficult to imagine uh, anybody, even if this, if the verified history of this shroud goes back to the Middle Ages, it's difficult to imagine somebody in the Middle Ages when they didn't even have photography creating something that would only be seen visibly through not only a photograph, but the negative image of a photograph, unless it was a time traveler that created something like this. <laughs> yeah, I, and look, and, and this is, I have to say this, that at the very beginning of this, when I was first asked to be on the team, um, I said no, I didn't want to get involved with it. Uh, I was raised in an Orthodox Jewish home, and so I never had any, obviously, any emotional attachments to the subject. But I didn't want to get involved in, in anything that was more of a religious nature. And I was assured that if I looked at who these team members were, scientists from Los Alamos National Sandia Labs, both American weapons laboratories, um, and two members from the Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena, uh, one of whom was head of imaging on Voyager, Viking, Mariner, and Galileo projects. Uh, we're talking about hard science here, uh, empirical scientists who were not in this for some religious point mm -hmm. of view, but simply to try and determine this kind of elusive image and what might have caused it. So we were uh, the team was put together with the experiments specifically designed to go there and determine how that image was formed and to characterize it scientifically so that it could be studied and perhaps determine how that image came about. Has your work on the Shroud and your study going back that many decades affected your your faith at all and whether or not Jesus did uh, did die and rise from the dead as the New Testament says? Well, it, it has had an impact on my faith, but not, not in, in the overt way that most people would think. Um, as I said, I was raised in an Orthodox Jewish home. My parents were both uh, immigrants born in Poland, so I was first generation here. God was part of everything in our household every day. Our grandparents lived with us. Um, but I had sort of walked away from religion right after my bar mitzvah when I was 13, mm -hmm. And I didn't look back until I was in my 50s, had already studied the Shroud. And after I built the website, people started asking me, well, what, what do you believe? And they weren't talking about the Shroud anymore. They were talking about faith, much as the question you posed. 
And uh, so it hasn't had that kind of impact on me. I'm not a Messianic Jew or a completed Jew, as my Messianic friends like to say. Um, But it did sort of prompt me when people started asking me what I believed. It sort of forced me to go back and look within myself to just sort of understand what I did to believe. I did. I wasn't even hadn't even thought about it throughout most of my early adult life. So it did force me to reconfront my own beliefs, and it did reconnect me to my faith in God in general, but not necessarily as a Christian or a Messianic Jew. Um, and we're talking with Barry Schwartz. You can check out his website shroud dot com. Uh, very quickly, a couple of quick questions before I uh, have to let you go because we are running short on time. I know, I know there's been, you alluded to some of the forensic evidence in support of this shroud being genuinely the shroud that Jesus was, was crucified in or buried with. I know there's been some hematological analysis of the, uh, of the blood that's on the shroud, and it found that it belongs to the blood, the blood type AB. Is there any significance to the blood type being AB? Well, some people claim that there is. I'm not uh, convinced that there's anything dramatically significant about that. Uh, If that is in fact, now also remember this, that the blood type testing that we now have in the 21st century is even more sophisticated than what was available to us 44 years ago when we did our examination. So uh, it would be good perhaps to re-examine the blood today using the latest technology. And I would say that's true of all of the technology that we used to examine the shroud originally, that the technology has advanced dramatically. In some cases, we have technologies existing today that didn't even exist back in the 70s when we did our exam. So I think that another examination of the shroud, given uh, the opportunity to repeat uh, the similar kind of testing that we did in 78, uh, using the 21st century technologies that are available to us now, perhaps could answer some of the mm. questions that remain unanswered. And to that this would day. have to be a decision made by the Pope. In this case, yes. Yeah. Uh, finally, sir, the uh, a lot of people say the most condemning evidence against the Shroud's legitimacy came from the 1987 scientific expedition where the carbon dating of some fibers from the shroud showed it being no more than 750 years old, nowhere close to the 1900 and change years old that it would need to be. How do, What's your take on that carbon dating from that 1987 situation? Well, look, as it stands today, we now have, I think, five peer-reviewed papers that have evaluated the radiocarbon dating of 1987-88, it turns out that they only took one sample. It was a little strip from along one of the edges of the cloth. And it turns out that that strip has a gradient of dates from one end to the other covering hundreds of years. So there is no way that that sample could be used to date anywhere else on that cloth because it was an inconsistent Mm. or inhomogeneous sample. So if that sample was the same at both ends of that strip, then that date would be much more corroborated. Unfortunately, it it wasn't. And sadly, for 27 years, the three laboratories and the British Museum that was the overseer of the three laboratories that did the dating tests 
refused to release their raw data. It took the Freedom of Information Act in 2018 and a French researcher going to England and forcing the British Museum to release the raw data. And once that was done and it was able to be analyzed, it turns out that they did, they threw away certain uh, tests that they ran. Got it. To achieve a 95% accuracy, if they'd kept all of the tests that they did, they could have never reached the degree of accuracy that they Barry, we're going to have to end it there. Thank you very much for the time this morning. I'll look forward to chatting again in the future. My pleasure, Frank. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. 800-848-WABC. If you want to comment, that's 800-848-9222. We'll try and get to as many of your calls as possible. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Um, Now, let me squeeze in some calls here. A lot of people have been patiently holding. Uh, I'll tell you some more stories later. And uh, there are a lot of stories to tell. 800-848-9222. John is in Freehold, New Jersey. Hello, John. Hey, what's up, Frank? It's uh, actually my birthday. I'm glad I got the Oh, you're kidding. Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. What are you uh, hoping to get for your birthday? Uh, I I all right, good. Well, I, I hope all of your wishes come true, not just today, but always. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I was hoping for a while there. Can I comment on Disney thing real quick? Comment on whatever you like. You have, uh, you have a minute and 40 seconds that you can spend as you see fit. <laughs> um, I was going to say, I just went out to Disney on my honeymoon in February. Oh, first of all, well, congratulations on getting married. Boy, you got a lot of causes to celebrate the last few months. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And um, let's ride there for adults. I'd say um, go Flash and Passage, Avatar um, ride. Yeah, I actually was on that Avatar ride when I was down there a few years ago for my um, stepmother's birthday. It is a lot of fun, actually. Yeah, so it really feels like you're flying on the back of the... Absolutely, absolutely. And then, uh, as far as the, the shroud goes, um, I, I think there has to be some kind of legitimacy to it because, regardless of when they date it, I mean, we're talking hundreds of years ago. I think you said it. Like, who would have faked that hundreds of years ago? And it's just a little odd that it's got all the right spots and you know all the blood and like all the stuff in the right spots that, like, go with the story. So even though I'm Jewish and stuff, um, uh, you know, I don't follow Jesus. I, I believe, you know, it could be something. Yeah. Well, thank you, John. I appreciate the call. Happy birthday and uh, congratulations you. on your marriage. I'll be honest, I tend to agree, you know, since this last segment that we did on this a couple of months ago, I've been researching this a great deal. I've tried to read as much as I can from the skeptics and the believers 
And I've come down to thinking the shroud is legitimate. Um, I mean, who in the Middle Ages is going to think to make a something that needs to be photographed with a negative image? This doesn't make sense. But as the age-old expression goes, as better men than me have instructed, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Thanks for listening. Coming up in just a few minutes, we are going to delve into, you ready for this? The exciting world of proportional representation. That's right. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll combined does not equal the excitement of proportional representation. What is proportional representation? If you don't know, boy, are you in for a treat. If you do know then you know you're in for a treat. You're not going to want to miss my interview with uh, Ellie Zupnik uh, coming up in about 15, 20 minutes. Meantime, you know, Google is really something. I mean, I have issues with Google, but based on what an... I mean, it's a great search engine when they're not censoring people, but Gmail really is something. Not only do I use Gmail for my personal email, but we use Gmail for our internal email here at the radio station. And if you email me at frank.morano at wabcradio.com. By the way, sometimes people try to email me at frank.morano at wabc.com. I don't get those. you got to include the radio, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. And a lot of times people will realize their error a couple days later, and whatever they were emailing me about, it's now a moot point. But the point is I use Gmail, and a few years ago, I noticed something with Gmail. When I would type an email, whether I was crafting an email from scratch or I was responding to an email that someone else had written, and I would start typing, it would predict what I was going to say next. And I, at first I didn't like it because, well, I don't like that this machine is putting words into my mouth or at least words into my keyboard i want to come up with these words on my own but ultimately look we all fall prey to the god of convenience don't we so ultimately i have come to embrace these gmail responses for instance right now you know because our last guest was barry schwartz one listener just emailed me Subject and email, may the Schwartz be with you. So I have three options that Gmail has selected for me that I can respond with. Now, I could write whatever I want, but I can write, I can respond if I just click one of these three things. It takes me no time. I don't have to think of something to say. I could respond with, same to you, exclamation point. Thank you, exclamation point. Or... You are so sweet. Thank you. Now, obviously, the term may the Schwartz be with you. That's from 
one of the greatest films of all time, Spaceballs. And so it's not really being sweet. It's being funny. But I'm going to choose that middle option that Gmail has provided me. And I'm going to click send. Yes, that's right. All right. Um, but anyway, a couple of years ago, I was working at another radio station and I had started this long, I don't know what it was, a memo, a report, something. I, I've, I'm not known for my brevity when it comes to memos and reports. Uh, I'm known for my comprehensiveness. I'll, I'll spare you the examples of that at this moment. But I was using Microsoft Word, and I still use Microsoft Word a great deal. And the darndest thing happened. My micro, my computer crashed, and I had to do a hard restart. I lost the whole document. It, it was it was a nightmare, and it was something that I'd been working on for a while. I don't remember what it was, but it was not something that I could just. I mean, it was something that took a lot of work and a lot of time and a lot of creativity. I don't remember what it was, honestly. It could have been a list of stuff. I don't know, but. I had no way of getting that back. And I tried all the tricks they tell you on Microsoft Word, recover, unsaved, document, tried everything. Nothing worked. And I was really ticked off. And one of the younger guys that was working at the radio station I I was at said, well, you know, you should try Google Docs. Google Docs. What's Google Docs? Google Docs is really neat, actually, because it's just like Microsoft Word, except – Not only do I have, not only does it automatically save pretty much, but I'll have the documents on the computer that I'm working on and my mobile phone, my Google Pixel, and any other computer that I use once I log on to my Google account. So, I mean, you think of that, it's like having the Microsoft Word documents with you all the time. So I've been using – I still do use Microsoft Word. I'm much more diligent with saving now, I assure you. But I have been using these Google Doc documents more and more often. And I guess I guess I never noticed this. But I suppose that with Google Docs, you can do the same thing that you do with Gmail and have it predict what you're going to write. Well, now – They have rolled out a new function for Google Docs that has got to be one of the stupidest things that I've ever seen in my entire life. And this is, and I'm somebody that encounters and hunts out stupid things every day. Google, I almost can't believe I'm saying this. I can't believe this feels more like the kind of thing you'd hear on Radio Onion. Google has rolled out a new inclusive language function that is intended to steer its users away from words that Google deems to be politically incorrect words. Now, what are those words? You're thinking maybe maybe the N-word to describe black people, the G-word to describe uh, Italians, the K word to describe uh, Jews, the S word to describe Hispanics, um, Oriental instead of Asian American to describe Asian Americans. No. 
politically incorrect words. I'm not joking here. Politically incorrect words like landlord and mankind. Outrageous. Google Docs introduced this woke feature this month that shows pop-up warnings to people typing in words or phrases considered to be non-inclusive, such as policeman, fireman, or housewife. So if you try and type one of those words in Google Docs, policeman, fireman, housewife, landlord, mankind, the online word processor's algorithm will alert them and their chosen terms may not be inclusive to all readers. That's what it says. Um, Your chosen terms, quote, may not be inclusive to all readers. And then it goes a step further by suggesting alternative, more inclusive words to use. Because, after all, why would you want to use policeman when you could use police person? Why would you want to say David Letterman when you could say David Letterhuman? That last one I made up. But nothing else is made up. For example, it might suggest humankind instead of the gendered mankind. Oh, isn't that nice? Or police officer instead of policeman. This new AI-powered language feature called assistive writing has been widely panned by critics who have accused the search engine of being both intrusive and preachy. Even Vice writers, which, if you're familiar with the publication Vice, at least these days, it's not exactly considered a a bastion of political incorrectness. Vice writers found that when they attempted to type in the words annoyed and motherboard, you know, like for a computer, these seemingly innocuous terms were flagged for being insufficiently inclusive. What? That's right. You can no longer type policeman, landlord, or motherboard without a suggestion for another phrase. I mean, what a f***ing joke. Meanwhile... A transcription of an interview with former KKK leader David Duke, where he uses the N-word and says a host of other reprehensible things about black people, raised no red flags. Google's popular free online document editor raised issues with Martin Luther King Jr.'s iconic I Have a Dream speech, suggesting that instead the civil rights leader should have replaced the fierce urgency of now with the intense urgency of now. Yes, leave unbelievable. It, leave it to Google to improve the words of Martin Luther King Jr. Google Docs algorithm also took issue with President John F. Kennedy's use of the phrase for all mankind in his inaugural address and helpfully suggested swapping it for for all humankind. Hell No, And even Jesus Christ didn't get a pass in keeping with our previous segment from the search engine with the writing feature taking a swipe at the use of the word marvelous in the Sermon on the Mount and suggesting that the Son of God should have used lovely 
instead of Marvelous. A Google spokesperson said that its controversial assisted writing feature is undergoing ongoing evolution. Now, I hope that after everybody has been making fun of this and mocking this, including me now, deservedly so, that they will change this because this is just this is just idiotic if you pardon my saying so. And if I was writing this on Google Docs, I'm sure it would suggest something other than idiotic. I I think this is the stupidest thing in the world. What say you? 800-848-WABC. That's one 800 You can comment on uh, any of the other issues that we've covered as well. Uh, Anna is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, Anna. Hi. Yeah, about Sheba. Maybe no one is monitoring her feeding and the other two cats are eating up all the food. You know, it's a great it's a great thought. But no, um, you know, either my wife or me feeds her ourselves. I see she's eating more than the other cats, actually. Mm -hmm. That's weird. I thought that would be the, the you know the, maybe one of the reasons. No, it's a good so, thought. Right. It's a good thought, but not only is she eating more than her fair share of the wet food, she snacks on the dry food throughout the day and she'll take treats whenever you give them to her. And if you're eating at the dinner table, especially if you got some, you know, seafood like I like, she comes right up to the kitchen table and mm-hmm. or the dining room mm-hmm. table and tries to get some of that uh that seafood. So she is eating. It's just she's not gaining weight. Oh, That's I'm sorry right. to hear that. That's right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Thank Anna. Eight hundred Wait, Dave is in Virginia. Dave is saying that Google might have paused this feature. Is that right, Dave? That's what I heard on our uh, local radio program this morning. The hosts were talking about it down here. Um, very boring radio program. But they did mention that Google had apparently pause that feature in Google Docs, thinking that it might have something to do with, you know, the takeover of Twitter by uh, Elon Musk and, um, and, and the blowback that the left is finally getting on their garbage. Interesting. Okay. I hadn't seen that reported yet, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if that were, was the case. And I'm, I was looking at it while I was on hold, but I wasn't on hold very long, so I couldn't do that for you. But uh, I'm a first-time listener to your program, and it's awesome. Oh, wow. Thank you, Dave. That's very kind it, of you. It's very good. Well, well I, I spend my time listening to WABC more than local radio because you don't, you don't uh, bag Levin for high school baseball like they do here. <laughs> that's good to know hey how do you listen to us do you do it through the radio or through the uh the app or on the website how do you listen well i mean at night when i'm driving in the car i can pick you guys up over the air on my uh on my radio but if i'm in the house i'll pick you guys up on the app or through um through uh tune in tune in because uh a lot of the cumulus stations are now on tune in just like a lot of the iheart radio all right. Well, I'm happy to. Uh, I'm happy you're listening. I hope you make it a regular occurrence whenever you're up this late. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you, Dave. By the way, if you're somebody that is in Dave's position, where you experience us in the car, but you can't experience us in the uh, in the home or something of that nature, download the smartphone app. It's free. It's free. What do you have to lose? And you get all sorts. There's all sorts of cool stuff on there. Not only can you listen to the station whenever you want. 
But there's poll questions, there's breaking news alerts. You'll be informed and you'll get the podcasts on there. So just search if you have a smartphone in either the the Google Play Store or the iTunes Store. Just search 77 WABC. It comes right up. It's free. It's great. 800-848-WABC. Before we get to uh, Ellie Zupnik and we talk proportional representation, Stacy is calling from Forest Hills. Hello, Stacy. Hey there. Guess where I was yesterday and today and yesterday morning, your favorite place, the Bogota. Oh, really? But Oh, really? But the thing I want to mention is I took the bus and then I haven't been in the city in four months because of all these uh, animals, nut jobs. When I got off the bus, the guys at Port Authority, the cops, don't take the train. Okay. Try and get a cab. It's their monopoly. Some of them wanted 100 it was like bidding seventy, a hundred and twenty dollars. Take a cab to Forest Hills. Wait, wait, wait. The cab. Some- wait, wait. Stacy, just so I'm clear. Taking the cab from Borgata to Forest Hills? No, no, no. I, you know, I took the bus right. to the city, and then afterwards I wouldn't go on the train. So they, you know, I'm looking for a cab. There were cabs there, nobody's in it. So finally, a lot of people come around me. It was like an auction. Seventy dollars, one hundred and twenty to go to Forest Hills. Oh boy! I had to pay them fifty bucks. Oh, that's. I'm sorry to hear that, Stacy. Did you at least win when you were in Atlantic City? Yeah, I did. Okay, I did. I mean, not as good as you. I don't play craps or. Well, that's okay. Craps. Hey, sometimes you do a lot better at slots. What's your game? Is it slots? Um, blackjack. Blackjack. Slots. All right. Well, as long as as long as you left with more money than you came with, that's the important thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the thing was, the cabs. I couldn't believe. I that hear I'm you. All right. Matt Blaze is is wildly uh, yelling at me that we have to break. Stacy, let me let me run. But uh, if you want to call back tomorrow and we do the AC report, we'll talk more about this. Okay, great. All right, thanks, thanks Stacy. Hey, uh, Ellie Zupnik and I are going to chat about proportional representation straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You're listening to 77 WABC. If there's one consistent theme with this radio program, it's that we try to do the things that no one else is doing. We try to cover topics that no one else is covering. We try and take angles on topics that uh, that other folks are doing that folks may not even think about. And that's why I have always been so eager to talk about proportional representation. You know, they use some version of proportional representation in Italy, Israel, Japan, a whole bunch of other countries around the world. We used to use proportional representation to elect our city council right here in New York City. And yet these days in New York, in in New York and around the country, it's very difficult to find places where proportional representation, as it exists in countries like Israel and Italy, it's difficult to find any places where it's really implemented. So I've tried to spend a lot of time talking about proportional representation, talking about its its potential benefits, and at least getting the conversation going. So you can imagine my surprise and my pleasure when I discovered a group called Fix Our House, which is trying to further this conversation on proportional representation and potentially even bring it 
to the House of Representation. What is it? Why should you care about it? How would it work? Those are a few of the questions we have for Ellie Zupnik. Uh, He is the founder of Fix Our House and the former communications director for Senator Patty Murray. Ellie, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. It's great to be on. So, Ellie, let's uh, boil it down to basics. What is proportional representation? I think most of our listeners are familiar with how Congress is elected now, at least how the House is elected, that it's in different districts and uh, big states like California, Florida, Texas have a whole bunch of little districts. Smaller states like Alaska and Hawaii may just have one. What is proportional representation? And if we would have it at a national basis, how would that look different than what we have in the House of Representatives? Well, that's a great question. And as you said, this is a system that so many other countries use. It is foreign here in America, but it's something that more and more people think is the right thing to do. So I appreciate you talking about it, and thanks for having me on. So put simply, proportional representation is a system where a political party's representatives are elected in proportion to the actual vote they get. Now, that seems like it should be obvious, but in the system we have, it doesn't work that way. In the system that we have... There are single winner districts where if any party wins a plurality of votes in a single winner, they win the entire representation. Uh, So if there are five districts in New York and Democrats win 51 percent in each of them, they get five representatives. They have 100 percent of the representation, whereas in a proportional system, if Democrats win 51 percent and Republicans win 20 percent and a third party wins 20 percent, Democrats would get maybe two or three seats. Republicans would get one or two seats, and the third party would get one seat. It is much more fair. It is representative. And I think critically, it allows third parties to form, which is something that is missing in our system right now and contributing to so much of the gridlock and dysfunction that we're seeing. Well, look, uh, you're talking to a guy who has spent the better part of his life working towards building the independent political movement and been a member of several minor parties over the years. So for a lot of what you say is like uh, an oasis in the desert. But for the uninitiated, um, how does it actually so as I understand it, let's say you get in New York City, um, we had a a candidate for mayor, one of my colleagues, Curtis Lewa, that got about 30 percent of the vote. And and that holds pretty true to how New Yorkers voted in lower races as well. Citywide, New Yorkers voted about 30 percent Republican. But there's only five Republicans in a body of 51 in the city council. So rather than them getting 30 percent of the seats, they have fewer than 10 percent of the seats. In a proportional representation system, the Republicans would get closer to 30 percent of the seats, right? That's exactly right. And and if you think about it at the congressional level as well, New York has 26 districts. New York went about 60 percent for Biden, 40 percent for Trump. But the current map has Democrats with 22 out of 26 seats. If it was proportional, it would be about 16 Democrats, 10 Republicans. But I think what makes it even more interesting is that if it were proportional, there could be third parties. There, There are different perspectives. We have a big country. We have lots of different viewpoints. Not everyone falls into just a Democrat or a Republican perspective, but in our current system, you have to choose. You either support the Democrats or you support the Republicans, or if you vote for a third party, you're often going to be a spoiler and vote for someone who could have someone closer to your ideological perspective lose the race because you supported a spoiler. 
proportional representation fixes that. It lets people vote for who they actually want to vote for, who they actually think represents them, and gives them a chance to, to go to Congress or city or the city council or the state legislature in proportion to the votes that they actually get. It's a system that just makes sense. It's just not what we do in America because we are an old democracy. America actually was founded before proportional representation was something that even was a thing across the world. Uh, and it's hard to change. But I think as people, the more people see how broken our system is and how gridlocked and dysfunctional and unrepresentative our democracy is, the more the appetite grows for real change like this. So uh, currently, the way it works is if I'm uh, somebody on the progressive left, and obviously this could apply just as well to the uh, to the hard right or the libertarian right. But if I'm someone on the progressive left, I may not want to vote for the Green Party candidate for Congress, because if I vote for the Green Party candidate for Congress or for another office, that might allow the Republican, the person I really don't want to win, to get elected with a plurality of votes. So if I have an interest in stopping the Republican, I would vote for the Democrat. In a proportional representation system, I would have no qualms about voting for the Green Party candidate because even if the Green Party only gets five or six percent of the vote, they'd still get some seats. That's exactly right. I mean, the most famous case of this nationally is Ralph Nader in Florida, where a number of Green Party voters voted for Ralph Nader, and they ended up being a spoiler because they probably would have supported Al Gore over George W. Bush, but because they voted for a third-party candidate into George W. Bush. And it's not a Democrat or Republican thing. It goes for anyone that there is no way for a third party to form unless they could get a plurality in a single election in a single district. And that's just that that's not going to happen in our system right now. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to shift the system so that third parties can form, people can can actually express their, their political viewpoints, third parties can get elected in proportion to what they actually, uh, to, to the voters that they have, and Democrats and Republicans can vote, can be elected in actual proportion. And, and you don't have places like New York, where right now there's you know, there's a map, there's a congressional map that's stuck in the courts because Democrats are trying to gerrymander and Texas Republicans are trying to gerrymander. In Oklahoma, you have a state where where Biden got 33 percent of the vote and there are zero Democrats in the congressional delegation. In Massachusetts, Trump got 33 percent of the vote and there are zero Republicans in the congressional delegation. It just doesn't make sense. And it, and it contributes to a country that is divided between red and blue when it doesn't have to be that way. There's a different way it could go, and, and proportional representation would help get us there. All right. Um, what are some countries? I mentioned a few, Israel, Italy, Japan. What are some other countries or, if not countries, municipalities, states, where proportional representation exists? Sure. I mean, you mentioned you mentioned a few. There's Germany, Ireland. Uh, we've, and, and you mentioned, too, that in American history, we, we have had proportional representation before. In our history, that has been tried in local government, state government. It's been tried federally. Uh, it, it just it keeps getting stamped out because we have a two-party system where the two parties are very powerful and they have a strong interest in pushing back against third-party formation. And they have found ways to to make sure that that these kind of systems that would allow third parties to form are just can't get traction. Uh, but I think that that's starting to change as more people are 
are are disgusted with the parties as, as we see the two parties move to the extremes and a lot of people in the middle have nowhere to go. Uh, that's starting to change, and I think there's more appetite to push back against the two-party system and uh, and to have more choices and a system where people are actually elected in proportion to the electorate. I think you can tell that uh, you're speaking with a, a very sympathetic ear, but let me bring up some of the criticisms of proportional representation that I've heard for the last 20 years or so that I've been advocating for it. And if uh, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Ellie Zupnik. He's the founder of a group called Fix Our House, which is trying to bring proportional representation to the United States on a national level. Uh, one one criticism which I, may have some validity, depending on the proportional representation system that's implemented, is that this encourages partisanship rather than voting for the best candidate based on their individual merits. You know, it's not unusual for listeners in our audience to ticket split. I like this candidate because of his education or her character or her ethnic upbringing or the neighborhood she's from or uh, the fact that I just feel like she has a, a great rags to riches story that I think would serve uh, her well in Congress. If I'm blindly voting Voting for the Green Party or the Constitution Party or the Libertarian Party or the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, does it diminish the value of having individual candidates that appeal to voters based on those candidates' individual merits? That, that's absolutely a valid criticism. I would say it's a criticism based on the system that we have where people are used to having just two choices and they have to look to individual candidates who are promising to do different things or who have particularly unique stories that they are voting for. I think if you look at other countries or if you look at places where there is proportional representation and there's multiple parties that actually have to cater to voters and actually have to try to win, try to present an agenda that people can support instead of just saying the other side is terrible, don't support them, you see candidates and more specifically parties actually putting forth agendas that appeal to voters that appeal to different groups that appeal to different ideologies and agendas so you see the kind of you know wh- where in america you have to rely on you know oftentimes wealthy candidates who are able to to be independent of their parties or people who have particularly unique stories or skill sets in other countries you see ordinary people who are able to just talk about the things they care about and attach themselves to parties that support agendas that people actually support, and they're able to get traction and support, and it leads to a much healthier, better system. In America, we have, we, we are very anti-party in America right now, and that makes sense in our two-party system where the two parties are so broken, but it doesn't have to be that way. Parties don't have to be bad. They are bad because there's no choices and people are stuck in one or the other, but if there's multiple parties and the parties have to compete for, for people's votes, it's a much different and healthier system. But are there proportional representations which can be more candidate-focused rather than party-focused? I know there's a certain system that are open lists, certain systems that are closed lists. I'm not an expert on the different varieties of proportional representations. Um, are there some some systems of PR which are a little bit more candidate-centered? Yes, you're absolutely right. There are the, the system that would likely make the most sense for 
the United States is a system uh, called STV, which is which is a system where it's not a partyless system like you see in Israel, where you vote for a party and then they have the party list their candidates in order and then those candidates get elected. In you know, if the party gets seven seats, then the top seven seats in that party get sent to the parliament. In America, it would most likely be a system where people vote for individual candidates attached to parties likely using some kind of ranked choice voting system, which people in New York City are now familiar with. And there's a combination of candidate-centered politics where people can advocate for themselves and tell their stories and why they, they would advocate for the people that they want to represent. And parties where, you know, you know that if you would vote for a Green Party, you're voting for certain things, or a Libertarian Party, you're voting for certain things in the Democratic Party and a Republican Party. All right. Um so the depending on the system that of uh, proportional representations that's used, it might encourage greater partisanship. But your view is that would be OK because the parties would be better incentivized to offer an agenda that appeals to a, a broad cross section of the American people. That's exactly right. Partisanship is bad when there's only two choices, when it's you have to vote for the lesser of two evils. But nobody ever talks about the lesser of three evils or the lesser of four evils. When there's multiple candidates, multiple parties to choose from that can actually be represented, then there's an incentive to put forward an agenda instead of just trying to tear the other side down. Right now, I mean, we saw in all the polling in the 2016 election, the 2020 election, 2016 election, there were so many moderate, independent and Republican candidates who were voting against Clinton in the 2020 election. It was the same case for Trump. And that's not a healthy way to run a democracy. Mm. And that's always going to be the case. And to some degree, you're always going to have negative vote, people voting against the other side. But when there's mo- when there is no other side, when the coalitions are constantly changing, when there's a group of people that come together to pass climate change legislation, and another group of people that come together on gun safety issues, another group of, to get that comes together on health care, coalitions are always changing. There's no single common enemy. It changes the dynamic and makes for a much healthier political system. Uh, what is the um, current legislation that's in the House of Representatives that you're supporting, and how would it work in in this country if that legislation were to pass? So we at Pixar House are, are advocating – we're trying to make the case for proportionality. We're not trying to get too specific right now. There is legislation called the Fair Representation Act in Congress. It's a good bill. It would lead to a uh, single transferable vote, STV, that would uh, be the kind of system that we talked about before where people vote for candidates. It's ranked choice voting so that people, the candidates will be elected in proportion uh, to, uh, to the numbers of votes they get. But our goal in Fix Our House is to really educate and raise awareness about the problems with the single winner system that we have and try to build a movement like the one that you've been talking about for years for proportionality and the idea that it doesn't have to be this way. You know, it's not something that's going to happen overnight. We don't expect legislation to pass this Congress, but things are things are bad and they keep getting worse. And we're uh, I think people are getting sick and tired of the dysfunction. So we want to show that there's another way. There's an alternative and you know, and proportionality is the way to the way to go. So you're not you're not necessarily married to this existing legislation. You just want people to start understanding the concept of proportional representation and how it might benefit the United States. 
That's right. And we, we have a long way to go. You know, we, this is not an overnight thing. It's going to take people speaking up, speaking out, calling their legislators, making it clear that, that they're sick and tired of the status quo. I think the Fair Representation Act in Congress right now is a good bill. But, you know, the, there's, there could be other ways to do it. And the important thing is for people to start making it clear that they want to have more choices. They don't think that this is the system they should be boxed into, that there could be a better way. And, and they're interested in their legislators making a change and doing something different. It is interesting that when I've talked about that uh, particular piece of legislation, um, a couple of callers have asked, well, how come there are no Republicans that support it? And I've asked my congresswoman, who's a Republican, to look at uh, at supporting it. And especially in a state like New York, I think Republicans would really stand to benefit uh, from that legislation, as would Republicans in states like uh, California, New Jersey, Massachusetts and other other blue states that have pockets of red in them. Why do you think more Republicans haven't gotten on board with this in the current Congress anyway? It's a good question. I think I think right now politics is so nationalized. That's part of the problem with our two party system is that everything becomes nationalized and and there's there's very little room for local initiative and local uh, local agendas to be advanced. Uh, and I think for for whatever reason, this is something that you know Republicans are not on board with many of these kind of reforms. I mean, Florida just banned ranked choice voting uh, for reasons I don't quite understand. Uh, but I, I think that's a problem. I think so they banned it outright. If a municipality wants to do this on their own, just for their town or their city, they're not able to do that in Florida. They banned it at the state level. You know, I, I'm not. I, I will admit, I'm not exactly sure how it plays out. I think it's going to be going to court in some way. But they banned it at the state level uh, for, for whatever reason. I think they. You know, right now there's a group of Republicans that are. You know, the the, the Trump wing of the Republican Party is dominant, and this is something that doesn't necessarily help them because the Trump wing of the party is able to often get a plurality in these primaries, these low turnout primaries, but they can't always get majorities or or, or they may lose some influence in ranked choice voting or proportional representation. Same thing with the extreme left wing of, the, of a Democratic party, um, and that's not always something that the dominant wing of the parties like so you know it's in our coalition in fix our house we have a lot of we don't have republicans that are supporting trump right now and i i don't quite understand why we have never trump republican types we have conservative center-right republicans people like miles taylor the anonymous guy and you know, the person who's who who uh, stood up and said what he that he thought trump was doing something wrong who says that he's a conservative and has no path to power there are people out there like Bill Crystal and others who, who support these kind of reforms uh, who are conservatives and right now see no pathway to power in the current version of the Republican Party, but think that a system that has some reforms that could open up the door to a center-right party, a Chamber of Commerce-type Republican Party, a more traditional Republican Party, not the kind of Republican Party we've seen recently, uh, that that could open up pathways to power for them. And I think, you know, I'm from New York and, you know, it's it's I know that there there are conservatives in New York and I, I talk to them who don't necessarily love President Trump or think that that's the kind of government they want. But there's no way they were going to vote for 
Senator Clinton, so they voted Republican. But they would love to have other options. They would love to have be able to to elect members of Congress that actually stood for New York style conservative values. And the same thing in Oklahoma for Democrats. Oklahoma Democrats are not the same as Massachusetts Democrats or California Democrats. They're different, and and they should be able to have pathways to power. So the Democratic caucus could be more diverse, more representative. You don't have, you know, this strict division between red and blue states and coastal and and um, and you know states in in the middle of the country. And and I think it would lead to a much healthier democracy and country if we had that kind of change in our electoral system that could lead to these this truly representative system. Well, uh, just uh, and if people just tune in, we're talking with Ellie Zupnik. He's the founder of Fix Our House. I, I want to focus on a couple of the other uh, potential criticisms of PR. But just to go back uh, to the Trump situation for a second, you know, a lot of Trump's appeal was to ordinary Americans, people that felt that the conventional Republicans left them behind by advocating for things like free trade and endless wars in Iraq and um, illegal and, uh, you know, legalizing illegal immigration to have uh, people, illegal immigrants compete with Americans for lower and lower wages. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of the aspects of Trump's message that Republicans, Democrats and independents found appealing was very much a populist appeal. And to me, there's nothing more populist uh, than proportional representation. I could certainly see a scenario where even a lot of Trump supporters would want to support PR, can't you? Absolutely. I think that's right. I think if you remember back after the 2020 election, there was a moment when President Trump and some of his supporters were talking about creating a third party, a MAGA type party. Uh, then they, they subsequently were able to pretty much take over the current Republican Party. So that fell away. But I think that's right. I think that may not last forever. There could be a moment when Trump wing of the party is pushed out of the current Republican Party. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon, but it's possible. But to your point, that was at that moment, they were saying, we think, you know, President Trump himself said that he was considering creating a third party if the Republican Party was going to reject what he said about you know, his claims about the election, which, of course, I disagree with. But they they many Republicans think that uh, he is right about so there could have been a scenario where if the Republican Party didn't cave to President Trump and, and if you know people like Majority Leader McCarthy and, and many others in the Republican Party didn't accept what Trump was saying about a stolen election, that President Trump and his supporters could have pushed for a third party. Now, I don't know if that would be great for democracy in this, but I think what we see in other countries across the globe is that you're not going to stop. There's always going to be an extreme right wing or a hard right wing. But healthy democracies are able to have conservatives push aside that extreme right wing. Um, and there they have conservative parties that are more moderate and so, allow moderates to express their voices so i i can tell by the the tone of how you frame the hypothetical that um you know a, a worst case scenario for you might be a government dominated by people like marjorie taylor green and lauren bobert and sarah palin and i get it for a lot of people uh, uh, the worst case scenario would be a government dominated by people like alexandria ocasio-cortez 
was Cori Bush and Bernie Sanders. Now, whatever wherever people fall on the political spectrum, that leads me to one of the next potential criticisms of PR, which is that the smaller parties, if they're able to get a handful of seats, they could have too much power. Now, let's say you're a, a, a moderate conservative. A lot of them don't want a world where the squad, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the others are the balance of power because then the fear is that they that uh, in order to form a majority government, the squad could make too many demands. If you're a center left person, I'd imagine that you'd have the same fear of a, a party headed by uh, people like Ted Cruz or, or Matt Gates. How do you address that criticism that that if uh, a party which might be considered fringe in the current system gets four, five, six percent of the vote? All of a sudden, they're in a position to dictate and control the agenda. Yeah, it's a good question. And I'll start by saying that democracy is a little bit messy, that you, there is no perfect system that uh, that that relies on democracy. Uh, you know, democracy is uh, it, it's the it's, you know, it, it has uh, it ha- any system that you look at across the world has problems. What I will say what the the way to address that is to create slightly higher bars. So in a country like Israel, for example, they have a very low bar. I think if you get two and a half or three percent of the vote, you're able to get a seat in the Knesset, the parliament. In most versions of proportional representation that people talk about for America, it would be about five member districts, meaning you have to hit a bar of about 20 percent in order to get a seat. And if you can get 20 percent yeah, that, that's a lot easier to get than the current plurality that you need in the single winner system. But if you can get 20 percent, you know, I think you represent a, a chunk of America that should have a voice. And, yes, there are times when it could be messy and that you know, they could be the difference and make uh, and um, and make or break coalitions and make demands. But that, you know, there, there's no perfect way to run a democracy. And the current way we run democracy is that. Marjorie Taylor Greene, who was elected by 44,000 people in a low turnout primary, Representative Ocasio-Cortez, who was represented by even fewer people in a low turnout primary, have have voices that uh, you know that in our current system they are loud and they they have an impact. Uh, but the reality is that they they don't represent that they don't represent all that many people. Literally, I mean they they weren't elected by all that many people in a proportional system. Senator Representative Ocasio-Cortez would likely be represented, uh, would likely be elected. Same thing with Representative Taylor, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, but they would be representing smaller parties potentially. They would have to negotiate. They wouldn't dominate one of the two major parties. I don't think Representative Ocasio-Cortez does, and maybe not Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene does, but I think that you could make the case that right now that, you know, especially on the Republican side, they are dominated or at least uh, they, they have to fear uh, their fringes much more so than should be the case. And they're constantly worried about primary challenges. General elections in 90 percent of districts right now don't matter. People go to the to vote in November and it's basically right. already decided in 90 percent of districts. And that that's just that just doesn't make sense. It's, a, it's not uh, and again, I, I want I want to have you back and we can have a longer conversation on this because I'm just at I'm just about out of time. But there's a couple of quick things I have to get your take on. Is this too complicated for individual voters to understand? Are people's eyes going to glaze over when they start trying to do the math on figuring out how many parties are entitled to which seats? 
I don't think so. I, I think Americans are smart. New Yorkers are smart. You know, we saw in the change to ranked choice voting, there, there was problems with the election board, but there wasn't confusion among voters. You know, people understand, uh, people know that, yeah, I think when you look at polling, people want more choices. People, people are ready for more choices. So I don't think that, you know, it could, it's a transition. Uh, there could, there may be, you know, there, there could be growing pains, but I think people are smart and they, and they know what they know, they'll know what to do. A lot of folks, uh, and again, want to encourage you to learn more about Fix Our House. We're talking with uh, Ellie Zupnik. Uh, the website, the website, Ellie, is uh, fixourhouse.com, right? Fixourhouse.org. .org, thank you. Um, a lot of folks like having a representative for their neighborhood, for their area, so that when they try to close a military base or close a post office or do away with a veteran's cemetery or, or put a, a landfill somewhere that the voters don't want it or, um, you know, put uh, windmills off the coast of a certain community. There's a local congressman to speak out, advocate for that neighborhood, for that district, for that area of the state and to use the levers of the the levers of the federal government's power to make sure that whatever local constituent concern is at play here doesn't come to fruition or uh, on the contrary does come to fruition with proportional representation and larger maybe even statewide districts do folks lose that hometown representative that's going to go to washington and fight for their community that, that's an absolutely legitimate concern, and it's why most versions of most proposals for proportional representation in the United States don't involve statewide districts. I mean, maybe for, for low population states, but in a place like New York, it would involve combining, for example, five districts into one, where you still have real local touches. People people understand the local community. I mean, New York has, you know, you know New York very well. They have, you know, five districts is not a very large geographic area. Um, but you know, it, it's something that it's a transition. And the way it works in many other countries that have adopted the system is that the different representatives in that slightly larger district, you know, one would focus on one particular area, maybe where they're from, another would focus on another particular area. Uh, and that's part of what they would run on when they would run for office is to be a representative for particular areas, for particular constituencies within the district. Uh, but I think you're right that in the United States, uh, people wouldn't want massive districts where people uh, where they don't they, they've just lost touch with the voters on the ground. But I would also say that in the United States, we have senators that represent the entire state. And, you know, I think most people feel uh, some connection to their senators. Senators work hard for better or worse to try to represent their voters. I think, again, it would be a transition. It's not exactly the way things are now. But if people think the way things are now is great and is going everything is going well then they shouldn't support proportional representation i think this is a system that has some changes but you know it, it's something that could lead to a better system more representative system and one that makes our democracy work a little better um lastly for real this time uh, there's been a lot of complaints when i brought this up on the air that um that extremist systems benefit when there's proportional representation. A caller called me one time and said that Hitler and the Nazis were elected because of a proportional representation system. They were able to do away with proportional representation here in New York City because two communists were elected at the height of the Red Scare. Is proportional representation going to lead to a bunch of Nazis and communists getting elected? <laughs> 
I don't think so. I, I, I think that, you know, it, it is right now we have extreme members on both sides who are able to win low turnout primaries and take over one of the two major parties or both of the two major parties. Uh, but they're able to do it kind of insidiously. They're able to do it without saying exactly what they are or exactly what they believe in. So I don't I'm not saying that there wouldn't be some kooks who could get elected in some parts of the country with 20 percent of the vote. I don't think they would have particular influence. I think they would be pushed aside. It's something that we've seen in com- countries like Germany, for example, where they consistently form coalitions that push, that ostracize their far-right parties, and they do have far-right parties. But what you see in proportional systems is that coalitions are able to form across, you know, across multiple parties that ostracize those those extreme elements, whether it's you know, the extreme left or the extreme right. And I think that's what you'd see here in America if any of those extreme elements were able to win. Ellie, we're going to have to end it there. I appreciate you being so generous with your time. I hope you'll come back soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. If you want to learn more about Fix Our House or proportional representation, you can go to fixourhouse.org. You can also go to fairvote.org. There's a a terrific, a lot of terrific resources at fairvote.org, not only related to proportional representation, but a lot of other alternative voting systems, which if you geek out over this stuff like I do, you'll learn a lot from. You want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to. 1-800-848-WABC. That's one 800 848 This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. By Queen. Hey, I want to um, I want to thank our telephone talent coordinator, Philippe, because it was interesting. I um, last night I was in a little bit of a rush to uh, to get here because you know I agreed. An old friend of mine from college does a podcast. I, I don't know how many people watch it. It was a video podcast. I don't know how many people watch it. I don't know how you can see it. But he's an old friend of mine from college, and he asked me respectfully. Can um, you be my guest on this podcast? And I uh, and I did it, and it was an hour, an hour. Now, the uh, it, it, the few hours that my wife and I are home together, and when we're when we're not when she's not working, between basically five p.m. and nine p.m., I try to spend those four hours with her. Now, yesterday there was even less time because she had to take the cat to the veterinarian and so forth. And uh, and do some other things. So I actually didn't get to spend any time with her at all yesterday. So by the time I finished this interview, it was nine o'clock. It was just about time for me to head into the radio station. And in my haste of leaving, she went to bed at nine. And so I didn't see her at all. And I figured, all right, if she's going to bed, I may as well head in now. And in my haste in leaving, because I'm thinking about all the things that I need to do, I forgot my laptop charger. And sure enough, I knew my laptop was going to die, so I was just doing it without a laptop. And Philippe, sure enough, has an extra laptop that he was kind enough to let me borrow today. A lifesaver today, if ever there was one. Until next hour, your influence counts, so use it. 
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. I'm not tired yet. I hope I'm. I hope you're not either. Well, it's no secret that uh, over the course of the last two and a half years, we've seen a trend accelerated that was already in the making ten years, and that is the movement towards remote working and working from home. We have seen all sorts of people who previously never dreamed of working from home, working from home all the time. Now. Our radio station is a notable exception to this. Uh, everybody comes in here, uh, just about. I mean, um, uh, even 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 um, James Golden, who lives in Florida, even he comes in here once in a while. Everyone else is here. Uh, the whole staff is here, the whole sales staff, the production team, the pr- management, even John himself, who could do the show from anywhere in the world. Even he comes in every day. We all come in ev- just about every day. Not just about. We all come in every day. So... Um, that stands in stark contrast to what a number of other businesses are doing and a lot of other um, radio stations are doing. My friend is, works at uh, WOR. He's a salesperson. He has not been um, in the office more than one day consecutively in two and a half years. A friend of mine was doing a show at WOR, and she doesn't even come into the studio. There's such a movement even in areas of business where people always came in to allow folks to work from home. My wife works full-time from home. My sister works full-time from home. My uh, mother's longtime companion works, I think, three or, or four out of every five days from home. There's a movement towards remote work. You know why? In part, it's due to the pandemic. In part, it's because a lot of employees like it. A lot of them like to be able to work in their bathrobe. A lot of people like being able to spend time with their children and uh, not have to commute to work. So a lot of folks enjoy this working from home. Good, bad, or indifferent, that's the case. So an interesting thing has occurred over the course of the last two years. Remote work has driven a huge increase in... This may not surprise you. Then again, it may. I can't really gauge your level of likely surprisehood. Remote work has driven an increase in employee monitoring software. While other workplaces have long used such technology to track workers' location and productivity, now remote monitoring, you know, employee monitoring software is going through the roof. Basically, this is software that allows your employer 
to spy on you. Employees, no surprise, hate this. You know, I'll tell you, uh, on Saturday, I got a call from our boss, Chad Lopez, Chelo, our very own uh, City Hall Autonomous District, Chad. And he said to me, what is this ping pong thing you have going on today? And at first, my first instinct was, wait a minute. Is he monitoring my email or text communication? Does he have some sort of spyware on my phone? And then I remembered I talked about it on the radio the day before, and he probably just heard me mention it on the radio. That's fine. Uh, I mean, you know, I'm not doing anything nefarious. Anyway, people are, mo- are welcome to monitor my uh, work email. But a lot of people don't like that their workplace is now spying on them. And now legislators want to set a few ground rules. Bills in New York, Connecticut, and Delaware would require employers to tell employees when they're using electronic monitoring. Going further, the... Workplace Technology Accountability Act in California comes with additional requirements. Ready for this? Employers must tell workers when, how, and why they're being monitored and how their data will be used. Workers can view and correct the data. Employers can't monitor workers off-duty on personal devices or in private areas, for example, bathrooms, locker rooms, and cafeteria. No technology that monitors facial recognition, gait, or emotions. Employers also wouldn't be allowed to use algorithms to make decisions about who should be punished or fired and must complete impact assessments on how monitoring affects employees. My question for you is, what do you think about this? What do you think of these bills, which would either prohibit your employer from spying on you, either at the workplace or at home, or they would make it so that you at least have to be informed why your actions are being monitored and that they are, in fact, being monitored? You don't have to sit there and wonder is my employee is my employer monitoring me? What do you think? Good idea, bad idea? Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. You know, I worked at one place one time where they had cameras, and all of a sudden the boss comes in at an hour that he doesn't usually comes in, and he says to me at at one point he says, "Yeah, you know, I like to come in this early once in a while because." Um, everyone wonders, oh, what's that guy doing here? And they see me, and I feel like they're a little less likely to goof off. They're a little less likely to be focused. They're a little more likely to be focused on their work. And he said, this is what he said to me, when I watch them on the cameras, sometimes I see them just standing around and talking and goofing off. When I'm coming here in person and they see me, none of them do that. Now, my understanding is under this legislation that's being proposed, they wouldn't be able to do that. They wouldn't be able to just have your you monitored on cameras 
taking a look at what you're doing all the time. They'd at least have to tell you. So what do you think of this? Good idea? Bad idea? Why or why not? 800-848-WABC. It's 1-800-848-9222. It's no secret that monitoring can be harmful to your employer's mental health and their physical bodies. I'll tell you, when I thought Chad was monitoring my email and text communications, I freaked out a little bit. I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, what else have I texted? What else have I emailed? Have I said anything negative about Chad? I don't think so. Have I said anything negative about any decisions he's made? I don't think so. And then I start I'm driving myself crazy, wondering what, if any, communications he's been checking. Amazon, for instance, was recently fined $60,000 by Washington's Department of Labor and Industries, which determined that the company's quotas and productivity tracking technology were connected to employee injuries. California Assembly member Ash Kaira, who introduced the, this bill banning employee monitoring, also argues that low-income workers of color are most negatively affected by monitoring technology designed to squeeze out every single ounce of productivity. Well, they're always going to claim that workers of color are the most affected. That's an old joke that Rush Limbaugh used to tell about the world ending women and minorities most affected. And some technology exhibits, apparently, according to some people, racial biases. For example, studies found that AI often reads black faces as angrier than others, regardless of their actual expression. By the way, employees often resist intrusive monitoring, which is why mouse jigglers have been on the rise. Do you know what a mouse jiggler is? A mouse jiggler, apparently, is uh, something that I was totally unfamiliar with until recently. Mouse jigglers are um, a tiny device that increases productivity levels by cre- keeping screens active. So it doesn't have your computer go into sleep mode. Isn't that interesting? I didn't know anything about that until recently. So my question for you is, should it be illegal as these state legislators in Delaware, California, New York, Connecticut have proposed for your employee uh, employer to spy on you, whether you work from home or not? 800-848-WABC. Why or why not? That's the question. A question. Since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born... I have awaited a question. There are one, two, three, four, five open lines if you want to comment on that uh, situation. 800-848-9222, 1-800-848-WABC. Very interesting. Also, I got a chance to chat the other day with my friend Sal Greco. Sal Greco is the former, not, not former yet, uh, but he's the New York City cop who they're trying to run through the ringer for being friends with Roger Stone, essentially. They're uh, trying to make some sort of connection with him and January 6th. He recently had to go through a departmental trial uh, for his association with Roger Stone. As I understand it, he's now had to hire not one, but two lawyers. So there's all sorts of subpoenas. I'm not sure what I'm allowed to say 
Uh, you would be shocked at some of the entities that are subpoenaing him right now. I do hope I'm able to reveal that to you in the future. But the point is, he's got a lot of legal bills, and uh, there there has been a legal defense fund set up to help him. And if you want to help him and stop this witch hunt right now, he's completed the departmental trial, and they are. Uh, he, uh, this was about three weeks ago. His trial ended. And they have between 30 and 60 days to make a recommendation to the police commissioner. And then the police commissioner, I think, has 30 days after that to determine what she's going to do. But if you want to help with some of his legal defense uh, fund, go to the website helpthisnycop.com. That's helpthisnycop.com. I'm going to be making a contribution, and uh, I hope you will too, even if it's only 5 or $10. In part, it's not even the money. It's, it's all about making a statement that you don't think this kind of conduct is really appropriate. 800-848-9222. Tom is in the Bronx. Hello, Tom. Hey, Frank. How you doing? So listen to this. I drive a truck, and my company puts a dash cam on my truck. Now, not only does it show the outside in front of my truck, it shows me inside of the truck. Oh. Okay? Everything that I do. Okay? And on top of that, when I hit the brake, the alarm, the, the camera will go off, right? If I hit a bump, the camera goes off. It also records what I'm saying. Ah. So when it's reviewed, it's got all my foul language coming out all over the place. And they told me about this. Well, oh, well so, so they, Tom, they told, just yeah, to, yeah. I, I, I don't want to, I hate to interrupt you, but I am. But um, one, maybe I guess an argument can be made that they have to do this because of insurance reasons or if there's an accident, they know exactly what transpired. Sort of like the black box on an airplane. Absolutely. But, Absolutely. but uh, they told you about it. At least you're aware that your actions are being monitored. Yes, I wasn't told about the audio, however. I see. And that bothered me. Oh, no, I can understand that. I'll tell you, there are all sorts of cameras in here, and we have a great film crew that uh, puts up a lot of great videos on social media. And if you ever want to see the videos that they put up, people can go to Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. And occasionally, now, when I didn't have these cameras in here, when it was just, uh, you know, Molly and Matt or Matt and uh, and Gabby or Gabby and Christian – I would really enjoy putting um, all sorts of things in my ear. I really enjoy putting a pen cap in my ear and just swirling (laughs) it around there. I love it. I love getting a little bit of earwax removed. I love just like scratching my inner ear like I'm scratching an itch. I find it incredibly satisfying. Other times I I enjoy putting a pen in my mouth. Ideally not the same pen that I'm sticking in my ear, but... I'll tell you, I don't do it anymore. Now, well, I try not to do it anymore. Now that I have these cameras pointed at me all the time, uh, I gotta go, Frank. I gotta go. Thank you. All right, Tom. I don't want them catching what you're telling me. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Should it be illegal for your employer to spy on you without your consent? Right now, legislators in four states are trying to say that it should. That they have to tell you. Or they're not allowed. I mean, again, there are differences in the bills in the four states. So I'm sort of painting with a broad brush here. But uh, they have to tell you or give you at least some say over why they're doing it. Let you know they're doing it. I think they should. I'll be honest with you. I think if my employer is reading my emails, they should have to tell me. 
800-848-9222. What say you? Joe is in Ron Konkama. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. Uh, another amazing show. Uh, two things. Thank you. First off, I want to wish my son a very happy birthday today. He's turning 11. He's oh. an amazing kid. Uh, he's doing excellent in school. Uh, Joey and Ron Konkama, I love you. Um well, that's great. Happy Frank. birthday to him. He shares a birthday with uh, with John in uh, in New Jersey. Oh, nice, nice. Uh, as far as what you're talking about, I agree with you 100. Um, percent They should have to tell you. Um, my job's got signs posted. They're they're not uh, video. Uh, they're video uh, taping us, but they're not capturing our voice. Um, and it states that. But there's one thing I wanted to tell you and your uh, listeners out there. If you have an iPhone and you got to look it up, Google it, but there's a step you got to take. If you go into settings, and actually, Frank, it will track your phone's tracking you every step. I went, I clicked on all these settings. It showed me leaving for work, arriving at work, going to the grocery store that earlier that morning, doing this, doing that. It's so scary, Frank, how they're monitoring us. The Google, the Google phones do that, too. At the end of the month, it sends me a report of all the cities I visited, all the places I visited. I, I actually, and I, again, I'm sure this as a privacy advocate, this isn't the best, but I actually kind of like it seeing all the spots that I visit. It's kind of a way to refresh my recollection about different trips that I've made to different places. But I'm glad your employer has signs up. A lot of people, and I think this is part of the reason people are upset, a lot of people don't know their employer is spying on them. Uh, happy birthday to your son, Joe. He also shares a birthday with my cousin, Madeline. You know, Madeline in our family is almost as popular a name as as Carmine. So my it all goes back to my great grandparents uh, who were named Carmine and Madeline. So they they had children and uh, then their children all named their children Carmine and Madeline. That's why I have a father named Carmine and I had a, a great uncle named Carmine. I have an aunt Madeline. I have a cousin, Madeline. I have a, have a, a cousin, Madeline, on the other side. So it's my cousin, Madeline's birthday today. Happy birthday to her. She's of the infamous Long Island Moranos. So if you encounter a Madeline Morano on Long Island today, wish her a happy birthday. Uh, also, Steve Lonigan, the former mayor of Bogota, New Jersey. Steve is in Manhattan. Hello, Steve. All right, Big Frank, and I guess happy birthday to everybody born on this day. You know? Absolutely. Just uh, quickly on that last guest, what he has to do is move to England. He's talking about a parliamentary system. And Well, uh, no, England actually doesn't use um, a proportional representation. They do have a parliamentary system, but England doesn't use it. They um, Israel does, Italy does, uh, Japan does, uh, Germany does, but uh, Great Britain does not use uh, proportional representation. They're winner take all. All right, then they, they better, he better move to one of those other countries. And you know what? Really, folks, just quickly before I get the other thing, it's the issues of the day that really matter. A lot of them aren't being addressed. There's millions of people out in the Midwest who don't vote. When you address the issues that are concerning them, they will vote, and that's how, how you win in this country. Not all these different political parties. You can do what you want, but the issues have to be addressed. Well, but, but Steve, addressed. and again, I want to get your comments on employers yeah. uh, spying on their employees, but and you're always kind enough to open yourself up to questions. Don't you think it's wrong that Republicans in New York City voted uh, for I mean, voters in New York City voted 30 percent Republican, but they have less than 10 percent of the power. Shouldn't they have 30 percent of the power? 
Uh, no, because we break it down geographically when we do our voting. So, so think of that, Steve. Steve, think of that, Steve. We New York is already a liberal city; it's a left of center city. But we don't have representation that accurately reflects how New York City voted. We have a city, we have a, a legislature that's so much more liberal than the way voters actually chose to vote. Right. But you know what? First of all, in the best interest of the country, it's better off if all the liberals and the lefties stay in New York City. Uh, But let me finish. I'll talk about the other thing. But, but, you know, they only leave because of crime. It's not because it's not liberal or leftist enough. But we do it by geographic. So you guys in Staten Island, you got a ton of people. Curtis would be the mayor if they're the only ones if you ran for mayor of Staten Island, right? That's where you guys right, are but, I mean, in New York City, in, from, from 1933 to 1945, we did it 12 years with proportional representation. And I, I think it actually worked out pretty well. All right. Well, well, we'll see. But I think the liberals should stay in New York City, the lefties. But, Frank, as far as spying and everything on people, listen, this is the 21st century they can go into your phones. They could do everything. You wouldn't even believe the technology that's out there and what's coming. They can. They have now cameras that when you walk into your job, they can tell what kind of mood you're in, okay, by your facial expression. Well, I know. I, I touched upon that. That's covered in this California legislation. Right. But it, the thing is you can't reverse technology, but what you can do is make sure – the right people are, folks, already are inside this country, and we are not flooded by people who don't give a you-know-what and people who would love to really see this country destroyed. Then our technology will take us everywhere. Putin, nobody would mess with us. Steve, remind me, what, what line of work are you in again? I'm an off-the-book surgeon. Oh, off-the-book surgeon, yes, of course. And uh, an off-the-book surgeon whose job, no doubt, was taken by an illegal immigrant. No, 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 no. no, no. Uh, but, you know, you Nobody should you should come you in here. Kidding? You should come in here one day. I think that would be fun to have you in studio for an hour. Can you email me? We'll we'll set something up. Well, I could actually do it on the phone. Nah, nah, nah. It's I not the same. Major, it's not the same. That is the same. We'll pretend I'm in the studio. I'm a major distraction anywhere Th- I go. That's for okay? sure. You're a major distraction on the phone. I, yeah, but the thing is, you'll have some fun. You'll have people. Listen, you Want to know something? We did that. On, I've done this plenty of times. A lot of times well, on national But I want to get shows. you in studio. I want to get you in studio. There's going to be a lot of good-looking chicks in there? You know it. You know it. All Absolutely. Right. But I'm going to tell you what happened. A lot of times on national shows, they had what was we called gas, get at Steve. And this host put like a 90-year-old woman up against me, and she started you know, calling me names. I don't know if he set it up that way or she felt that way. And he wanted to know why I didn't respond. And I said, listen, first of all, my neck of woods, we don't fight with the women. We do other stuff with the women. We don't fight with them. But he would have the audio of Steve from Manhattan fighting with a 90-year-old woman. You know how that would go down anytime he could just drop that, you know, drop that in there and it'd be yeah. embarrassing. All right, Steve. Well, I, I, give me a call if you want, if you don't have email. 816-8-Morano. I want you to commit. to go through the roof. Yeah, hey, I we're want doing your fine, to go through the roof. It must be because we have you on so often that we are doing fine. Number one in New York, by the way, AM or FM. 800-848-WABC. Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Rick. Yes, good morning, Frank. Morning. Uh, b- before the advice on the cats, yeah, I, I happen to be someone that was spied on. <clears throat> I worked in Broadway, and we found out that the uh, smoke detectors had pinhole cameras in them, and they were directed toward our office. Now, the reason they gave us when we found out was people had been 
punching the time clock in for other people, which is stealing time and money. Right. And they have they have the right to protect their assets. So I had to know that this camera was watching me 100 percent of the time, like you were saying, which I would always like adjust my pants in the right direction right. when I had to. But uh, their their thing was that they have the right to uh, protect their their workplace, you know. And it was like, okay, I, I don't know what to say about this. Yeah, again, like as it. long as they're as long as they're informing you, oh, I no, have less of an no, issue. No, no, no. We found out. I have really. Guy who put them in. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it was like two, three years. And we didn't know. Wow. Well, yeah, so do you yeah, support yeah. this legislation? Actually, I do. Yeah. Actually, I do because it. it I happen to have like a small brother does, and I have cameras in the hallways and stuff uh, to protect myself to see who's discharging the, uh, the fire extinguishers and things like that. So, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, sometimes if you work for someone, if they they could be in the office with you, you have to assume that your boss is always over you and uh, act accordingly. Yeah. Well, uh, okay, Rick. What else did you want to add? Well, about your cat. Did, did you get anything from the vet as to what's wrong? I have a cat with the same problem. I'll tell you. No, I mean, she. they said all her normal, her levels are normal. Her uh, blood sugar is normal. It's not diabetes. Blood pressure is now normal. The uh, thyroid? Or, the thyroid? No, everything, everything is normal. The, the only theory okay, the so. veterinarian had was that it could be some type of uh, irritable bowel syndrome. Oh, okay. Because uh, my cat has the same thing. Like, cats are very, very common on getting hyperthyroidism as they get older. Yeah. No, uh, they specifically ruled out any any thyroid issue. Okay, that, that, that's all I had to put in. But about the cameras, I do it. I do actually do it because I do it, and I know that I'd be very upset if my tenant said I can't have cameras in the hallways to protect myself. Yeah. Again, no. my my issue, Rick, is informing people that they're being. Oh, watched. okay. Yeah. No, they all if, know about it. Yeah. They, if well, yeah. I mean, I think they should. I I mean, if I if I if my emails are being monitored. By my employer or my mobile phone, I would want to know. So I'm careful, even more careful than with what I'm sending. 800-848-9222. What do you think? 1-800-848-WABC. Russell is in White Plains. Hello, Russell. Hey, Frank. I thought uh, everybody understood that the TV has the microphone, our telephones, the iPad. That we're being monitored in the surveillance state. Right. The radio. I'm watching you right now, Russell. Right. Well, that's what... That's what I think. I actually too. like those I'm, slippers. I'm, actually, they're Crocs, red mm. Crocs. But I'm so surprised Steve got the invitation of his lifetime, and he's camera shy. I mean, that's amazing. But let me bring up one thing about Scott Ritter, because you know, now that Molly's gone, Molly was able to tell me in the uh, in the podcast where exactly you answered things. I don't know if you addressed. I asked you why you brought up with Scott Ritter. You kind of kink shamed him about those uh, arrests that he had. And it seemed like entrapment. And I just wondered, what, you know, why did you, you sort of said, well, people were going to question me out there if I didn't bring it up. But that's the whole point. You have discretion. You rise above it. You right. know what I mean? I R- just wondered. Russell, so I spoke to Scott Ritter for about a half hour. And I spent oh, yeah. about 45 seconds asking him about his arrest. I, I gave him a hypothetical mm-hmm. saying I, I there are going to be some people that try to discount the things that you've said because right. you're a convicted felon and because you've spent time in prison, what would you say to those people? Now, right. I, I thought he gave a fine answer. He, yeah. he could have said, well, look, it has nothing to do with my prior qualifications on foreign policy. Look, I try to ask everybody 
challenging questions. And it, look, I think right. the fact that he is a convicted felon might affect his credibility with some people. So I think I had an obligation to ask him about it. Frank, you had a great interview. It just seemed I cringed, and I thought, did Frank prepare him for that? Because he did give a great answer, and it was good that you did it, but it really undermined him, and I thought it was unnecessary. All right, Thanks. well, you, you might be right. I've never claimed right. to be perfect. Thank you, Russell. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Anthony is in Tinton Falls, New Jersey. Hello, Anthony. A- Anthony, is that the place where they always have a problem with flooding, or is that the place where they have a very old mayor? Um, well, we just elected a new mayor. Oh, new mayor. Oh, congratulations. Um, yeah. And we're about five miles from the ocean, so flooding's not a concern. Okay. Got it. Okay. Uh, um, I worked for the city of New York a couple of years ago, and they tried to put the surveillance equipment in, and they had to let us know that there were cancer warnings on the devices. You're kidding. That they were trying to install. Yeah, really? So. But they installed yeah. them anyway. No, the union. Ah. Uh, had a fight with the, not a fight with the city, but they had a discussion and they went a different method. All right, well that's uh, that's good to know. Yeah, they wanted to put it in the cab where it could uh, cause you know, I guess uh, testicular cancer and stuff like that was the concern. Well, so did they end I mean, up putting in? Did they end up putting in any other um, employee monitoring software or cameras or anything like that? As far as you know. Um, certain vehicles have cameras, but all the garbage trucks had like, um, they had just regular GPS monitoring so the city could track where the truck is at all times. Interesting. All right. Well, yeah, well, that is interesting, Anthony. So do you think that if your employer is monitoring you, whether it's via camera or whether it's monitoring your email, that they should have to let you know under the law? Um, I would say, doesn't the FBI have to know when they're wiretapping people and stuff like that? Isn't it kind of the same? Well, I mean, the FBI doesn't tell the people that they're investigating that they're being uh, wiretapped. Uh, but I, I, I think it is sort of the same thing. Uh, thank you, Anthony. 800-848-WABC. By the way, speaking of the FBI, I'm going to give you a preview in just a minute of the latest podcast uh, that I've done for the Racket Report in which we touch upon. Some of the FBI's tactics. Stay tuned to that. 800-848-9222. Joseph is in Newburgh. Hello, Joseph. Joseph. All right. Joseph has found other things to do. Pete is on Staten Island. Hello, Pete. Hey, Frank. Uh, yeah, back in the day, I they put surveillance cameras in you know, NBC in the loading dock. And one day I was coming through that swinging doors. So a piece of scenery flew off and hit me in the eye. So at the time, I was, you know, working my way into the union. I wanted to continue working. So I didn't think nothing of it. I had a pair of sunglasses. I put it on. Within 10 minutes, all the unit managers were coming down. They got a hold of me. Go, uh, what's with the sunglasses? Ah, I, says, ah, I just had a little bit of a headache. So I says, remove the sunglasses, and my eye was bleeding. Wow. So they they rushed me to the hospital. I had a slashed cornea, but, you know, I you know, I figured I'd work through it. I didn't know it was that bad. And I had surgery done and everything, and it was, you know, your eye was pretty much back to normal. But the surveillance camera saw me get hurt, and I didn't want to make a big thing. But I didn't think it was as bad as what it was. But that's a perfect example. And my daughter... She works for the city. She's not allowed to work from home. So what they do is they tell her to get in the car 
and work from a car or go to a library and work for a library. I don't, I don't, wait, I don't understand that. I don't understand. Why, what's the difference well, if she's working from a they library? Don't anybody, they don't want anybody with the city working from home because they let all those city employees go. And they're saying that they're not working from home, but a lot of them are. But in my daughter's case, they want her at a library or to work from her car if she's not, uh, you know, on the uh, when she's doing like uh, cases on the road in Staten Island, you know, going to people's houses, remo- removing children, or uh, instructing parents how to be better parents. You know, she's got a very a serious job, and the, my daughter was nurtured for this job. She, I didn't restrict her from things. I let her see things. We were in the city. We see a dead body in the on the street. We didn't hide or walk. I let her know what life is really about because in New York, you have to be alert. Yeah, well, fair enough. Thank you, Pete. 800-848-9222. Hey, you know what we're going to do? We will uh, do 16, uh, 15, uh, excuse me, we'll do the $1,000 minute in just a moment. So if you want to try and win... $1,000 by answering 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. Give me, give us a call right now and be the seventh caller to 1-800-848-9222. If you are the seventh caller to 800-848-9222, we're going to give you an opportunity to answer these 10 relatively simple trivia questions. And if you can answer them all within 60 seconds, you're going to win $1,000. Simple as that. Go ahead and call right now. 800-848-9222. It's a $1,000 minute. Straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Hey, you know what uh, today is? Today is not only um, my cousin Madeline's birthday and Joe from Ron Konkama's son, um, but it is also the birthday of a lot of other people, including Ulysses S. Grant was born in 1822. Today in 1822, 200 years ago today. The hero of Appomattox, the let's see, 18th president of these United States, 18th, 16th, 17th, yeah, 18th president of the United States. Um, so happy birthday! And you know, I'm going to an event tonight um, at the Union League Club. John Katzmatidis was actually kind enough to invite me. That um, is taking place with General Petraeus, actually, which was um, is being done in part to commemorate the 200th birthday of Ulysses S. Grant. So uh, there you have it. Coretta Scott King's birthday today. And, of course, who could forget Casey Kasem, his birthday today. He would have been 90. And now on with the countdown. All right. uh, Time now to play the $1,000 Minute and give somebody an opportunity to win some money. The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. 
answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Uh, let me begin with Troy in West Babylon. Hello, Troy. Hi, Frank. How are you doing? I am doing very well. Thank you. Appreciate you asking. How are you doing? I'm pretty, pretty good now. You kind of a minute. Good. Yeah. Well, best. so yeah, I, I'm wishing you the best of luck, Troy. What are you going to do with the money if you win it? Um, not, not really sure. Uh, well, kind of caught me by surprise. Probably just put in the bank for, for. There you go. Okay. All right. Maybe pay some bills. All right. Uh, so the key, Troy, as I tell everybody, don't get flustered. Just relax. Most of these questions are pretty easy. In fact, I would venture to say eight of these questions are really easy. Uh, So I I think this might be your lucky day. Just don't get flustered. That's the key. Okay? All right. All right. Ready to go? Yes, sir. All right. The timer is going to begin after I ask you the first question. All right. The first question is, how many letters... In the English alphabet. 26. What country did Russia recently invade? Ukraine. What professional sport does LeBron James play? Basketball. What imaginary line runs through the center of the earth? Equator. Which famous British physicist wrote A Brief History of Time? Um... Um, Albert Einstein? Mm, no, I'm sorry. Al- Einstein was, uh, was not British, and he did not write A Brief History of Time. Uh, it's, it's, you know, he had a lot of thoughts on time travel, but no, this was Professor Stephen Hawking. Oh, damn. Yeah, well, I'm sorry, oh, uh, Troy, but I'm going to put you on hold and, um, and give your information to Philippe, and we're going to give you a consolation prize. The consolation prize this week is the uh, the Other Side of Midnight t-shirt. You know, I spent a lot of time today, and I guess I shouldn't have been because I was using it to pro- procrastinate. I spent a lot of time today on the new WABC radio store, and you could view the store for yourself at WABCRadioStore.com. I ordered all sorts of stuff because um, I wear this uh, this old WABC jacket that Richard Bay had given me, and I like it. It's kind of a throwback. And I have a few different WABC jackets. I'll never forget. There was one year. It was 2005. And I was like an associate producer of the Curtis and Kuby show. And Tim McCarthy was the general manager of this radio station at the time. The program director was Phil Boyce. And the two of them are going around with a big bag of jackets. Big bag of jackets. That say Curtis and Kuby, 77 WABC. It's really, really kind of neat. So a big bag. And they're giving them out to a lot of the different employees, but not everybody. Not everybody. Kuby gets one. Curtis gets one. The producer at the time, I think, was a fellow named Emiliano. He got one. Um, all sorts of people got one. Mike Bloomberg. It was a Friday. So Mike Bloomberg was doing his radio show from there. They give Mike Bloomberg one. And then some, and then Tim says to Phil, and to this day, I still don't know if Phil was joking. Tim says to Phil, well, what about Frank? we got to give Frank one. And Phil says, well, I don't know about Frank. And then they keep walking. They don't give me a jacket. Now, um, 
subsequently to that, three or four months later, they needed me to do an appearance on a Saturday when I was only working Monday through Friday at the time. And um, they said, well, do you have a WABC jacket or something that you could wear for the appearance? I said, no, I don't, but I sure would like one. And they gave me one. And uh, that was and so I've treasured that to this day. So I have that one. Then another year we had red jackets. And then I found I can't remember if I found it when we were moving out of the old building recently or if Curtis had it in storage. Another cool WABC windbreaker. I have that one. And then I have this jacket that um, that I think Richard Bay gave me. And then I got a really neat sweatshirt kind of vest, a sweatshirt vest that John Katzmatidis had made when he took over the station, and he gave me that. So I have like four or five different types of WABC jackets slash vests, and I really love wearing them. I'm very proud of the fact that I, I work here and have worked here, and I love being an ambassador to the station. So I'm always trying to get more, and I spent so much time at WABCRadioStore.com today I bought all sorts of stuff. I got to tell you, I bought a brand new The Other Side of Midnight t-shirt, the very same one that um, Troy is now going to get for free. And I bought this really cool WABC bomber jacket, and I thought, well, wait a minute. Should I get the bomber jacket and the unisex packable jacket? Should I get the Letterman jacket? Should I get the pullover? And before I knew it, I had four jackets in my car, I said, all right, look, look, I have $98 in my bank account. Let me not buy four WABC jackets. So I just bought one jacket and one shirt. But the point is they have added all sorts of great WABC merchandise. So if you like WABC, uh, I think you really should check out the store there. If you like me, you can get a Frank Morano unisex uh, sweatshirt. You can get a heavyweight T-shirt, a Frank Morano white glossy mug, an embroidered adjustable hat. You can get a unisex hoodie that has an alien on it and my name on it. I think this is the coolest thing in the world, that somebody can actually buy a T-shirt with my name on it. And you, as you know, I believe, I am on a one-man mission to make terrestrial radio cool again. Now, how do you do that? Now, I've determined, we've done segments on how that should go, but I've determined the way to do that is to get the young people, not not the millennials, but the Gen Zers, the Gen Zers and then the generation after the Gen Zers, the Generation Zers to embrace terrestrial radio the same way that millennials embraced Polaroid cameras and film cameras in general, the same way that millennials embraced wearing beards, the same way that millennials embraced um, vinyl records. That's probably the best example. Typewriters. I want to get the Generation Zers to make terrestrial radio cool again. So what I think the strategy has to be is to get the neighborhoods that are most dominated by and and the cities. I'm not just limiting it to New York. Get the cities and the neighborhoods that are most j- dominated by Generation Zers and Millennials to start wearing these Frank Morano WABC shirts and hats, so that when they go out to all these trendy dive bars surrounded by all their fellow Millennials and Generation Zers, 
And they get asked, hey, what's that? What's Frank Moreno? What's WABC? All of a sudden, a buzz starts growing about it. Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book about this. I think um, I read several of his books. I don't remember which one he focuses on in this. But Malcolm Gladwell, oh, it was the tipping point, the tipping point. Malcolm Gladwell writes in this book, which is really interesting, that there comes a point where you just need, like, just enough of the population to embrace an idea or embrace something, then it, it achieves critical mass, and then it becomes really, really trendy and really hip. So that's why what I'd love for you to do is go to WABCRadioStore.com, search my last name, Morano, or search the other side of midnight, buy a shirt or a jacket or a hat or a mug, and then not only get one for yourself – But buy one for the hipster, the millennial, the Generation Zer in your life, even if they don't know who I am, even if they don't listen to me, buy it for them anyway. Say this, a a very, a very interesting person wanted me to bring this to you so that you can be a brand ambassador amongst your fellow hipster and Generation Zer friends. And then I want to see these shirts all over Astoria. I want to see these shirts all over Park Slope, all over Brooklyn Heights, all over Williamsburg, all over Jersey City, all over Hoboken, all over Portland, right? And then let me see it in these trendy areas. Let me see these 19-year-olds that have no idea who I am wearing these The Other Side of Midnight t-shirts. I think that's how you and I together can save terrestrial radio. So go to WABCRadioStore.com, type Morano, buy whatever you want. Even if it's not my product, they have great Bernie and Sid products. I actually was going to buy some of the music radio WABC stuff, too, because it's such a great kind of like throwback piece. And um, so they have some cool Cousin Brucey stuff, too. I mean, it's a great store. And I've never seen a radio store that has this many options of swag that you can purchase. And you, you go hog wild if you're a WABC fan. And then we'd like you to post the photo on social media. You can tag me in it. Or you can post it right to our Facebook group. If you're not a member of the Facebook group, by the way, be sure to join it. Uh, you can go to Facebook and just type Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's where we post the musical selections every day. And we have a lot of great uh, stuff going on. Now, as promised, yesterday, I we uploaded another edition of The Racket Report. And I have a feeling this edition, or The Racket Report, if you don't know... It's a podcast that I do on WABCRadio.com. It's all about issues that we don't touch on this show. All about issues related to organized crime. And um, it's very interesting that we do these podcasts because it allows us entry into a whole different audience. And my guest this week, And you can get my racket report either going to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Morano fan, or just search it in wherever you get your podcast. Just search the racket report, and I'd appreciate it if you'd subscribe. My guest this week um, is Angel Gotti. Do you know who Angel Gotti is? Angel Gotti is the eldest child of John Gotti. Yes, the John Gotti. The boss of the Gambino crime family, probably the most famous gangster of the 20th century. 
This is their eldest child. Everyone knows about Victoria Gotti, his daughter, the reality star, the journalist. Everyone knows about her. Everyone knows about John Gotti Jr., who himself was a, a leading member of the Gambino crime family. But a lot of people don't know about their oldest, Angel Gotti. We had a fascinating conversation. We talked about what it was like growing up with your dad as the most famous gangster in America. We talked about how the federal government um, treated her father. We talked about a wide variety of subjects, which including what she's doing now, which may surprise you. And that's why if you if you don't subscribe, subscribe. And if you if you don't want to subscribe, just go to my Facebook page. It's on there. Facebook page, facebook.com slash Morano fan. And I encourage you to share it. But we spent a lot of time talking about how the federal government treats cooperators, how they treat informants. I'm not going to get into too much of this now, but we spoke about how the government lets these people out of prison for basically a get out of jail free card and how so many of them are now in the midst of becoming media superstars, including the person whose testimony was so damning to her father, Sammy the Bull Gravano. Sammy Gravano was integral to your father's conviction back in 1992. His testimony is considered pretty important in the annals of criminal justice history and mob history. Now he is this mob expert going on primetime television, doing these specials, has this podcast, which is listened to by hundreds of thousands of people, supposedly. What is it like for you to see Sammy Gravano try to reinvent himself as a sort of a media star? First of all, I don't watch him at all. Never. I've never seen one of his pod, whatever you call right. them, shows. Same. I've never seen one. I've heard about it because he did one about an innocent child that he killed, 16-year-old Alan Kaiser, and I am very close with Alan's sister. So she called me one day, like, crying. Because he turned it into, he's a liar, and he turned that boy's murder into that Alan was a junkie. He was only 16 years old. He was no junkie. He was an innocent person, an innocent bystander, and he was killed. And Gravano tried to make this as Alan was a moron for running towards them. Meanwhile, he was shot in the back. And that the kid was a junkie. And it was basically like this kid deserved it. Now, that girl lost her brother in, I think it was 1974. That family had no idea why he died or who killed him until 1991. When the FBI rang their doorbell and told them, look, this is who killed Alan. And I'm sorry, but there's nothing you can do about it because He's going to testify against John Gotti. I mean, wow. Wow. I would encourage you, if there's one, only one episode of the Racket Report that you're going to listen to, listen to this one. Please subscribe. Please share it. It's on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Morano fan, or just, again, search the Racket Report wherever you get your podcast. 15 seconds of fame. 
next. We're going to allow you to be heard on any subject for 15 seconds. Uh, start dialing now, 1-800-848-9222. There's one, two, three, four open lines, 1-800-848-9222. 15 seconds of fame, straight ahead. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. For our song, this is indeed The Other Side of Midnight. Coming up at 5 o'clock, you're going to get to hear the WABC Early News with uh, Deb Valentine. And then coming up from 6 to 10, you get to hear Bernie and Sid. Their guests include Jason Whitlock. Uh, he's going to be on at 7.40. I know he was on a Tucker Carlson on Tucker Carlson's show last night, and I'm sure there's a lot of interest in what he's saying. And uh, former Congressman Peter King going to be on at 8.40. Now, though, it's your turn to be heard for 15 seconds and only 15 seconds at 800-848-9222. It's time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Faith. Fred is in Yonkers. Good morning, Fred. Did you know the Statue of Liberty is over 300 feet tall? Initially, they wanted to make it 500 feet, but they ran out of copper. It's truly a statue of limitations. Oh, Joe in Orange County. Hey, Frank, the, government, the government's been doing this for years. They want the big fish, and what do they do? They let mass murderers go free just to get them. Mike in New Jersey. Hello, Frank. If you're going to have Steve from Manhattan in studio, I suggest you make sure that the metal detectors are up and running. Tony in Staten Island. With friends like Curtis Lewa, who needs an enemy? Bada bing, bada boom, Curtis. And finally, Victor in Manhattan. Kathy Hochul is certainly not a local yokel, notwithstanding the fact that she still thinks Buffalo Bill Cody was born in Buffalo and Buffalo Bob Smith was the biological father of Cody. That slams the lid on things for today. Back tomorrow at 1 a.m. Frank Moreno, good day.